I have friends like Eva Patterson. Okay, so I say with all love and warmth <laughs> that part of the concern also for people who, um, who are progressive thinking and liberal-minded, or just progressive thinking in terms of just fix it, fix it, is that we all have these posters in our closet that is attached to a stick that we sometimes will card out when we're talking about criminal justice policy and those statistics that you first heard when we opened it up, incarceration, and we run around with these signs, build more schools, less jails. Build more schools, less jails. And we walk around everywhere, build more schools, we protest, build more schools, less jails. Put money into education, not prisons. There's a fundamental problem with that approach, in my opinion. And it's this. I agree with that conceptually, but you have not addressed the reason I have three padlocks on my front door. So part of the discussion about reform of criminal justice policy has to be an acknowledgement that crime does occur, and especially when it is violent crime and serious crime, well, there should be a broad consensus that there should be serious and severe and swift consequence to crime. My name is Ben Burgess. This is the Give Them an Argument podcast. I'm about to be joined by uh, Michael Powell from the New York Times, then David Griscom from the Michael Brooks Show, um, the comedian and podcaster Dave Smith, um, economic planning enthusiast uh, and the co-author of the People's Republic of Walmart, uh, Lee Phillips, and Anna Kasparian from the Young Turks. Uh, but the voice you just heard uh, was uh, Kamala Harris, who has uh, just this week been announced uh, as Joe Biden's running mate. Uh, and as you heard in that clip, up until about six weeks ago, or I'm exaggerating, a year or two ago, uh, her main selling point politically was what a tough prosecutor she was and how tough on crime she was, uh, first as a DA and then as attorney general in California. And the fact that even under these circumstances, the national unrest that's happened since the murder of George Floyd, uh, bringing attention to issues about police militarization and police violence, uh, this person who was a proud spokesman of the carceral state uh, in 2018 uh, is, was, is now Joe Biden's running mate. And not only is that not an incredibly controversial choice because of that, but it's widely taken as a representational victory. Uh, and I think that thinking about why it's taken as a representational victory right now uh, gets us to issues about how much we care about symbolism uh, and how much we care about underlying political substance and uh, also thinking about what she just said about schools and jails uh, gets us to a larger point about the relationship between the politics of mass incarceration and poverty and economic inequality uh, and how all that might relate to racism uh, which is precisely why at the top of the show here, uh, I, I wanted to get uh, Michael Powell on. Uh, he is the author of uh, a piece that uh, just went up at the New York Times yesterday uh, about uh, Adolf Reed, uh, who's one of my favorite thinkers on the left, uh, and how there was an incident where Reed was supposed to speak 
uh, to um, a meeting that was on Zoom, of course, because of the pandemic, co-sponsored by a couple of different branches of the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, the main socialist organization in the United States, and why that became so controversial. Right? So, um, so first of all, Michael, thank you so much for coming on. Sure, my pleasure, Ben. So, I mean, I, I guess, uh, I guess first, you know, first things first, right? So, just basically, since you know, my hope at least uh, is that there will people be people who watch this who aren't like immersed in the subcultural trivia of debates uh, between different kinds of socialists. Uh, I, th I think like a good a good place to start is. Um, is who is this guy? Like, what, why is Adolf Reed somebody who, who would normally be invited to a, so speak at a socialist meeting? Well, you know, it, that's a great question. I mean, and, and I should say I've read, you know, Adolf Reed for, you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, and, and I think he's one of the more, the most challenging and interesting uh, and often counterintuitive thinkers on the left. Uh, doesn't mean you always agree with him, but he course, is, no. you know, he's formidable and, and, and he brings, you know, he brings it. Um, and he was, you know, I mean, his, I think it's fair to say one of his longtime takes, um, mm. you know, has been the importance. He certainly does not, he certainly does not say that race doesn't matter. He doesn't go that, there, but he says that, you know, without an understanding also of class, and of the, uh, you know, that, that, that a left analysis and a left organizing will ultimately founder without, without the two of those. And in the case of, in this case, I mean, he was bringing up around COVID-19 um, that much of the discourse uh, for some period of time had been on dis racial disparities. Um, I think foremost probably on, um, you know, African-Americans who, and let's be clear, I mean, were disproportionately getting sick and were disproportionately dying, I think, because of the nature of the work that they were doing, which is right. very often frontline, and because they live, uh, they, because many African Americans, certainly poor and working class, I speak it like from Brooklyn where I live, they yeah. live in crowded conditions. So, what, but what he argued is that, look, if you focus on that, if you focus on those disparities, um, you're left with a, you're, you're left with a, with a, or you're, or you're running the danger of falling into old kind of race, um, you know, race-based ideas of kind of medicine, of biology, of race. And he thought that was a dead end. And, yeah, and, and yeah. Yeah. So, so, so one way to think about this, uh, certainly in terms of his immediate concern there, is that uh, if you if you're saying all right, so uh, black people, members of other minority groups are more likely to die of COVID than, than white people. So that could be for two reasons, right? One is that is some sort of um, genetic thing, and and while it's not impossible that sometimes you could have clusters of genetic traits that roughly track what we call race. Um, by and large, that's that's not generally the most useful place to look uh, because. Hey, race, right, is is a mostly a pseudoscientific concept, right? It's it's a sort of socially and historically contingent way of sorting people, right? You know, but but it's it's yes. not actually that biologically mm -hmm. meaningful. Um, but really, 
you know, the, the main reason, right, that black people are more likely to die of COVID than white people is the unequal distribution of poverty. That, um, you know, as you say, black people are more likely than white people to be so-called essential workers, of course, so essential that they're uh, being paid almost nothing, to, you know, to, uh, you know, certainly much less. And not less given than proper PPE and all, everything. Yes, precisely. Yeah. Uh, and now, of course, uh, that does have to do with uh, the history of de jure racial apartheid in the United States, going from slavery to Jim Crow to uh, FHA redlining very recently. Um, and Adolf Reed, of all people, uh, is, is not um, unaware of this stuff, right? You know, he's, he's, he's written extensively for decades about that history. Uh, he grew up, uh, as you mentioned in the article, uh, in, you know, the Jim Crow, you know, as a black man in the Jim Crow South um, and, and has, um, has a long history of engaging with those issues. Uh, but I think his, his perspective, uh, given his understanding of the socialist project, is that we shouldn't think that, all right, imagine if you could somehow correct all of these racial disparities immediately I don't know how that would happen without some kind of massive redistribution, but, you know, but if you could, and so you had exactly proportional numbers of white people and black people living in miserable grinding poverty, uh, being economically coerced to, you know, to go to work as essential workers during a plague, uh, being victimized by the style of aggressive and militaristic policing that's used to uh, police poor neighborhoods. Uh, and the proportions were exactly right as the portions of the population, this isn't really an exciting vision of a just and free society. Um, and, and instead, you know, from, from his perspective, what we should really be focused on is, is the poverty, right? You know, we should be real about that unequal distribution of poverty and the historical injustices it reflects. Uh, but, but the main thing we want to go after is not like equalizing who's at the bottom of the ladder. I recently did a book on the Navajo uh, and, and the Navajo got absolutely slammed by COVID-19. The Navajo, in, in, uh, mainly in Arizona, also New Mexico, a little bit of uh, uh, Utah. In Arizona, which has gotten slammed of late, the whites are leading, you know, if you will, whites are the worst hit there yeah. because, I mean, we could, a whole variety of reasons, but whites tend to be, that there's a fair number of, working class and poor whites. They tend to be in a lot of those frontline jobs. They've gotten hammered. In, in Texas, Latinos, you know, the, the, the biggest infection and death rates among Latinos, blacks are also getting hit, to be clear. Whites are also getting hit, but Latinos are far and away the one getting slammed the hardest. If you go to a place like Florida, I believe it is African-Americans. I mean, the point is, right, I mean, you know, the commonality is not like there's some um, genetic commonality there the commonality it seems to me is two things right one is poverty working class poverty and frontline jobs you know those are the people whether and again frontline is an interesting you know term of art it could be you could be a, a nurse you also could be just packing groceries in a store and it isn't like you signed up to be a frontline worker right but you are <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you've 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 just been told that uh, that you're you're on the front lines now, but <laughs> yeah. uh, but no no combat pay. That's not going to happen. Uh, yeah. So um, so so what what's interesting about this, right? So the the core of this this plan lecture that uh, that Adolf was going to give 
uh, to uh, these two DSA branches uh, was was just making this this point that we've talked about, right? That um, that the that hyper focusing on uh, on racial disparities and COVID outcomes, you know, leads to us looking in the wrong place, right? You know, like either his immediate concern there, which was the revival of race science, essentially, right? You know, thinking that like you know genetic differences among the races. Uh, are are going to be more relevant to poverty, or generally not saying uh, that the issue uh, is poverty and working conditions, which are certainly going to disproportionately impact uh, people in the sectors of the population that have historically been victims of racial injustice, but are more general conditions for lots of other people. Uh, And I guess from my perspective, I would think that this was a relatively... um, you know, I would maybe naively imagine this would be like a relatively uncontroversial thing to say among socialists uh, who are, after all, definitionally committed to some kind of class politics, to seeing to see politics through the prism of um, the interests of the working class and how those differ uh, from, um, from the interests of those who own businesses and are at the top of society. Um, but uh, but by the time this happened, what you kind of talk about in the article, and most of the article is devoted to the kind of underlying substantive issue about like how we should think about the relationship between these things, you know, um, racial bias, class structure, you know, uh, the history of all of those things. Mm-hmm. But the, the opening hook, right, is about the way that people were accusing Reed of being a class reductionist, which is basically someone who, you know, the accusation is that you don't really care about anything except for economics and you tell other people not to care about anything except for economics. And this had been so toxified by the time it was supposed to happen that one of the two branches, New York city DSA uh, had um, officially disassociated itself from the event by the time it happened. And there were concerns about disruption uh, and eventually, uh, I think, you know, Reed and, and the remaining organizers just kind of decided it wasn't worth the headache to try to go ahead with, with the talk at that I point. I understand that it was sort of a mutual agreement that this was, they didn't want it, <laughs> the organizers particularly, and Reed didn't feel like, you know, going through the headache of worrying if somebody was going to bounce in his Zoom, you know, talk and right. that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and I guess, I guess there's, a, there's a bigger issue here. And by the way, I've also been joined by David Griscom, um, or at least I see his, uh, his avatar there. I assume, I assume David's around. Sorry, I didn't mean to crash the party. No, no, no. That's good. That's good. Uh, David, uh, uh, David Griscom, uh, for, for anyone who's not familiar with, uh, with his work, uh, is um, one you know, part of the crew and, and I guess now essentially a co-host at uh, the Michael Brooks show since uh, our friend Michael passed. Uh, and he does the uh, Griscom Economic Minutes there. Uh, and uh, on TMBS, right, you guys uh, have interviewed Reed a few times, right? Yeah, like, for sure. I, I think several times over the years. Um, and, and I know uh, Michael really considered him one of his big political mentors, you know, at the... Uh, at the end of his life, you know, so, so I think there's basically from my perspective, everybody should check out the article. Right. But I think there, there are two points of interest here, right? One is what we've been talking about, which is like, how is it that we relate uh, to this sort of horrifying racial history of the U S while also building 
cross-racial solidarity to do something about these larger issues of poverty and economic inequality, which is obviously a hugely important thing. And there's also something that's like a larger issue that, that intersects with that in this case, which is the way that um, on parts of the left right now, I think maybe because um, so many of us are feeling so politically powerless at the moment, right? That uh, the, the Bernie Crick campaign in which, you know, so many of us had invested so much, you know, of our uh, hopes for the future uh, was initially very promising and then crashed and burned. Similar things happen in the UK. Uh, I guess I'm low one in Mexico, but most Americans aren't really tracking that. Uh, and in, um, and I think in that moment of kind of powerless and disorient, powerlessness and disorientation, there's this real tendency to kind of pathologize debate and, and disagreement, you know, within the left uh, to, to sort of um, be very quick to jump to the worst possible interpretations of the motives of, of those who, who have different political positions. Uh, so an obvious case would be people whose take on Adolf Reed is, oh, he's just saying like, you know, you shouldn't talk about race because that might offend racists, right? You know, sort of like the ugliest possible take on that. Um, and, and I think, you know, and, and before, um, you know, and, and before you, you leave, I was, I was just kind of hoping Michael and feel free to jump in on this also, David, you know, that I could kind of get your take on the larger phenomenon, right? You know, like, cause this is something that, uh, you quoted Cornell West, uh, in the article speaking directly to this point, right? About how, how, if we're not willing to have certain kinds of open discussions within the left, this is going to lead to really bad results, right? Because we're just going to kind of hope to, that we get it right the first time because we don't have a way of course correcting. Uh, and, you know, how much of a problem this is um, and, and, what, um, and, and, and why maybe people should think twice about acting this way, about like responding to debate and disagreement in this way. Well, look, I mean, I guess my thought would be, you know, and, and I do think context is important. Mm. I understand. I mean, we live in apocalyptic times, right? I mean, we have a we have a a plague that is sweeping the globe in horrible ways, has locked people down. It's coming at a time that people's heads are exploding about, you know, Trump and an election year and all of that. And then on top of that, of course, you had the George Floyd death, which was absolutely horrible, obviously, in, in its, I mean, on its face. And then, because we're all locked up, we're all watching it happen all the time. And I, so I do understand this, this kind of a, and I want to be careful because I'm not like suggesting a derangement syndrome or anything, mm -hmm. but rather that there's just a, you know, there's like, it's like a pressure cooker. And so I do think in fairness and, and, mm -hmm. and my values certainly are towards, you know, you want to see debate? It seems to me like, I mean, you know, like have a, have him come in and speak, have someone else come in and speak. You know, I mean, there's, there's, you, you can have all that kind of dialogue. Yeah. You could have Adolf Reed one week and Kianga Mata Taylor the next and yeah, somebody the next else the third week. week. Precisely. But I, you know, so I understand, I understand why that was more difficult that this, you know, is sort of like a, an imperfect coming together of all of these um, things. But I do, I mean, it does strike me that, one of the really hopeful 
aspects of things that have happened on the Democratic left has been the kind of revival, uh, re, you know, of, um, you know, DSA, of, you know, you have Jackman, I mean, you have a whole bunch of these, the current events, I mean, you have a whole bunch of really kind of interesting things coming together um, in a way that is both, you know, somewhat older. <laughs> so it's not like, you know, it's not some of the sectarian stuff of the, you know, 70s. Um, and it's a lot younger than DSA was, you know, in the 80s, which is all great. I mean, all, all that stuff's good. But I ju- you do hope that it carries with it, you know, this profound commitment to talking this stuff out. Because it, it does strike me that's a real danger for the left if the left starts, you know, saying, well, no, we can't, we can't do that. You know, like, I, I get it. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a big thinker. Adolf, but he's not, you know, that's not where we want to be right now. Strikes me as just unfortunate. And I would also add, especially at a time where a lot of Adolf's analysis is really important, um, you know, just on something that he talks about a lot, which is like racialized medicine, which obviously has a horrible history in this country, and trying to build the awareness that when corporations start incorporating different kinds of speech, it's not necessarily a good thing. You look at what's happening with, you know, a coronavirus vaccine right now. There's this big push to, you know, to test it on, you know, communities of color because there's been this idea that, you know, certain ethnic groups, uh, racial groups are like more prone to death from it when there's no real scientific backing to that idea. Um, you know, these are important questions for the left to be engaging and, and refusing Adolf Reed's, you know, space to speak because they're difficult or confusing and sometimes, um, not the most pleasant conversations is a huge uh, risk to take at a time right now where like you are seeing, um, you know, central uh, like centrist and like neoliberal capitalists being very comfortable with this kind of language. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, Michael, for, uh, for, for coming on and yeah, everybody please uh, read that article. Okay. Well, thank you. And uh, and thanks for your help. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Michael. All right, brother. All right. Let's do this. Um, you uh, you drinking right now? Yeah, I got some uh, really nice uh, Texas rye, Balcones, which I've been really into. I, I think I've told you this before off air, um, but I typically don't like uh, whiskeys, U.S. whiskeys that aren't, you know, proper bourbon, Kentucky style. But somebody got this for me as a gift, and I really like it. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm very surprised you'd like something from Texas. That's uh, that's got to be some kind of first. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, so if uh, for anybody who who isn't familiar with the Michael Brooks show, uh, and um, and and hasn't seen uh, Stephen David on there, uh, he, well, actually, he may be the second proudest Texan that I know. Uh, the proudest is my father-in-law, uh, Thomas Prater. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but he's right up there, uh, and um, and and in fact, um, one, uh, one one thing you know when I, when I was talking about like you know varying up the topics a little bit you know for for the show, giving it a little bit more character and you know uniqueness, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and the role that David could play in that, right? Like I, I, I said. Uh, this is not a joke. I really do. Uh, I really do want to talk about country music with you. Uh, yeah. In fact, because uh, I, I think you made a provocative comment, uh, you know. But 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 I want to get the, uh, uh, the the case for this, right? The uh, that so some people 
you know, when they think about like a classic sort of uh, left icon uh, culturally, you know, might think of somebody like, I don't know, like Bob Dylan, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that like, you know, cause, cause there's some, you know, some of the music that, you know, that he made back in the day that refers to the peace movement and other things. But uh, what would your nominee be? I would argue that Willie Nelson by far um, has been more more crucial and has actually like lived through those kind of left wing uh, values uh, than Bob Dylan. And, you know, I'm being provocative. I love Bob like any other um, like any other person. But people don't really understand just how radical, for example, like outlaw country music was Mm. specifically Willie Nelson. And I just wanted to, you know, share a couple quick stories that I think, you know, hinge on my argument. Like, well, Willie Nelson wasn't making music that was, like, explicitly political. He was making music for uh, the people, and it was obviously a massively important uh, artist. And for people who aren't familiar, um, you know, there was a massive movement in the 70s and 80s uh, called the American Indian Movement. Um, And it was a fight for sovereignty and justice and fairness in society, in American society, uh, for American Indian people. And... One of the tragic cases and major political issues there is uh, Leonard Peltier, um, who was framed for murder, a murder that he did not uh, commit. And it's been proven now that the testimonies that were used against him were forced testimonies. There was a lot of evidence tampering. Basically, the FBI wanted to get a massive political prisoner, and Leonard Peltier is still a political prisoner in the United States. I mention that because Willie Nelson, from the get-go, supported a letter Peltier and not just in a, you know, way saying a couple things here or there. He actually did benefit concerts for Leonard Peltier. He did something I believe was called like Cowboys and Indians, a concert for justice for Leonard Peltier. And that became, uh, this was for people who aren't familiar with this story, this was a massive issue. Um, and one that was very much uh, prototypical of like now the back to blue kind of thing, because the idea is like by supporting Leonard Peltier, you know, you're anti-cop, you're anti-FBI and Willie Nelson for years, Whenever he would have a concert, there would be massive protests of police officers outside, uh, you know, making picket lines outside of Willie Nelson concerts. And he's continued to support him. And I'd also add another great Willie Nelson story and example in uh, uh, comparison yeah. to somebody like Bob Dylan, who's really checked out. You know, Willie Nelson was showing up for Standing Rock as a mm. you know old elderly man is continuing to show up and continue to fight for justice. And I think, like you know, just generally too, I would add that. You know, uh, it's really important for me to make sure that these stories are heard and understood because I love country music. I love Southern culture, all those kind of things. And there's such mythology around it, um, especially now when country music is so corporate dominated and there really is not much room for like serious political messages other than really stupid conservative or like 9-11 things. But that's coming from the studios where artists have really been stifled. Um, but there's this like kind of radical history out there and we should embrace it and celebrate it and try to use it working, you know, going forward in our kind of political movements, uh, not letting anything sit outside of, of our project because, you know, left, uh, politics touches so many aspects of our lives and so many people, uh, that it's something that we just shouldn't dismiss because it's easy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, so, so something actually the next time I have you on, you know, what, what I really want to get into it with you about. Uh, and, and maybe you can just kind of like briefly preview your answer before I bring on Dave Smith uh, mm-hmm. would be, I didn't know this is a big question, right? But like, what would a version of the socialist left that could actually get majority support in Texas look like? And how would that be different? Well, I guess I'll just do the, the quick spark notes and say, one, 
Um, it's happening right now. Uh, the people who are doing serious work across DSA chapters and also labor organizers are doing incredible work in that state, and it's really uh, shifting, and I support it completely, and I think what, everything that's happening is great. Generally, uh, my, you know, my quick advice um, would be don't rely on the destiny of demographics, which a lot of people mm. focus on, a lot of people, especially the Democratic Party, do. People think that all these people coming from California are going to ch- turn Texas. That's a bad strategy, especially because the right-wing turn in Texas actually came from a massive influx of suburban uh, people moving from the rest of the country to live in the Texas suburbs. So not a strategy that we want to play in the first place. I also don't think it's going to bring the politics that we want. Um, and I, I just add that, you know, there's a really great history of, you know, socialist ideas and socialist leaders in Texas, um, but there's also really interesting political forms too. Uh, public power in Texas is something big where people in cities own their own power grid and they actually get payments at the end of the year. Um, things like, uh, you know, community land trust and things like land that's not owned, for example, by like an individual, but by a community and you can rent a house on top of it for a hundred years. Those are kind of like, you know, proto-socialist forms that exist within the state. You want to win in Texas, you got to you gotta be able to appeal to people who love Texas. And there's no better way to appeal to them than to say, like, actually, this kind of left-wing history is just as Texan as anything else. I like it. Thank you so much for coming on, brother. Yeah, of course. Right. I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Love you, man. Love you, too. What's going on, brother? Dave Smith, I should say, is uh, a comedian, a podcaster. Uh, He's the host of uh, something called Part of the Problem, uh, which um, I actually just saw. I haven't watched it, but I just saw somebody tweet out some discussion that you just had on the show about uh, Kamala Harris's uh, horrifying record as a a prosecutor uh, and, and as attorney general in California. That's the stuff that up until about six months ago was her big selling point, you know, how tough on crime she was. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the winds have shifted a little bit since then. Uh, but, uh, but, but I should also say um, that uh, Dave uh, has, has had me on part of the problem twice. The, uh, the second time uh, was to uh, debate uh, Gene Epstein about capitalism and socialism. Uh, and I, and I, I felt okay about how that went, but the, uh, the first time was to debate Dave himself about uh, taxation, uh, and um, that, I think, was the approximate, on my end, I think that was the approximate debate equivalent of, like, some, like, horrific set that a comedian bombs that, like, they're going to remember for the next 10 years, uh, because cause basically... Uh, other than a couple of YouTube randos, the first one of those that I'd done, and, and I think I... I basically treated it like I was having a classroom discussion and a philosophy seminar and you could sort of like play with examples and lead people to the point in a really roundabout way uh, when it's a format where if, if you don't like get to the fucking point, most people are going to, are going to tune out. Um, so, um, so that's uh, despite that being the site of a, uh, of a great embarrassment. Uh, I always, uh, enjoy talking to Dave uh, about the stuff certainly that um, you know that we that we disagree about uh, that um, which which we are don't worry going to get to uh, <laughs> but uh, but also um, also about things where where there is um, more of uh, a coming together uh, between between libertarians and leftists uh, and um, 
And I, and I want to get into some of that. And I also want, um, I know this is a lot, you know, for, for half an hour, we'll see, we'll see how much happens. Right. You know, but, uh, but I also want to get into, uh, uh, some stuff about comedy a little bit. And I think a good way to start the, uh, the last two subjects, right. The, uh, the, the comedy and the, um, and some of the stuff that might actually be areas of agreement, uh, would be thinking about something that happened last year that I've, I've thought about many times since then. It always like amazes me when I think back to it, uh, which is that um, uh, Louis C.K., uh, who is um, a extremely talented uh, comedian who made some some bad decisions uh, about um, about masturbation. Uh, that was the uh, that was the, the core of the issue there. Uh, that uh, that apparently he had a habit of asking female comedians if they were okay with it if he masturbated in front of them, and then sometimes they would say yes because they didn't think he was serious, right? Like they just figured it was a gag, and then he'd actually do it. Uh, and um, and I think that CK, you know, whatever else you think about that, I think CK himself would say now, like that's not something he would recommend <laughs> that anybody do. Uh, but because of this, right, you know, Louis C.K. is, you know, seems to be like a pretty straight down the line liberal politically, as far as I can tell. Uh, and he uh, tried to give some money uh, um, months ago. Uh, I guess I said last year. I'm not sure. I'm not exactly sure how many months ago, but he tried to give some money to the Joe Biden campaign. Uh, and the Biden campaign gave it back. Right. So this is a this is a campaign that's and a politician who's taken all kinds of money over the decades from like credit card companies in his home state who's in charge of regulating and uh, just just all kinds of like sketchy figures and apparently has never thought twice about it. Uh, But this crossed the line. Right. So 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 to be clear about this, the worst thing Joe Biden's ever done, there's some competition. But like one thing that comes to my mind, you know, one thing that I think is surely in the top five worst things that he ever did was being one of the main Democrats pushing for the invasion of Iraq, which led to uh, over a million people dying. And the worst things that Louis C.K. has done all seem to involve masturbation. (laughs) And that doesn't seem as bad. Well, okay, so I, I completely agree with the spirit of uh, what you're saying. Um, by the way, just a quick note, when I came into the Zoom conversation, it was when you had the your last guest, it was when all three of you were here, and I swear, the moment I came into was uh, your guest was saying, we really have to talk about Adolf's uh, theory about um, race and medicine. <laughs> And I was like, whoa, what has happened to Ben Burgess since the last time we talked? This is not the show I was expecting at all. But about a second yeah. later, I realized it was, this was not my, my Jew spidey senses were tingling up. Like, whoa, dude, I don't think we should talk about that at all. Okay, this sounds not nearly yeah, as bad. Yeah, I will yeah. say this. I don't, Louis' actual worst, at least from what I heard of the mm. incidents, the worst mm. one didn't involve masturbation, at least to me. The worst one I heard of was he was on set somewhere working and he asked one of the female employees that like working on the show with him, if he, if they would watch him masturbate and they were like, no. And he was like, Oh my God, I'm sorry. And then that was it. And that was to me like even creepier than asking female comedians when you're yeah, back at your this hotel. Is somebody who's maybe actually kind of working for him. Yeah. And, yeah. and you're at work. It's not like yeah, in yeah, a social yeah. environment. So that one was really yeah. weird, but I do think your, your point is a really important one and it's a really important one, particularly for the kind of, woke 
strain mm. of, of strand of the left, um, which is why I personally have a lot more respect for a, a leftist like you, like the more or less the Bernie Sanders kind of wing of leftists than I do about the with the kind of outrage, you know, uh, mm. I, I don't know, like authoritarian PC for whatever mm. word you want to call it. But it's like, OK, you can be outraged at, at Louis C.K. And, and that's fine. But you have to kind of have a hierarchy of outrage. I know leftists don't like uh, hierarchies, but in this sense, I think it's a justifiable one. And you have to, so if somebody, right, like the, the people who, you, so you can take money from Raytheon or Lockheed Martin or credit card companies or, you know, JP Morgan Chase or any of this, but you can't take money from Louis C.K. Do we not see a little bit of a problem? Even, even if you think what Louis did was wrong, he does not have, as you pointed out, millions of corpses on, on his, you know, on his record. And, and I'm sure that if there was a, a, you know, a John McCain fund or something like that, <laughs> right, right, they'd right, have right, no right. problem taking that money from him. So this is, this is a big problem because outrage is a finite resource. And yeah, so and, much, so yeah, much of absolutely. the outrage in our society, it just goes to nonsense when there are really important things to be outraged about. And in my opinion, the number one is the, the longest wars in American history where but between uh, Bush, Obama, and now Trump, we've destroyed like six Muslim nations. There's still right now in Yemen, I mean, there's going to be as many dead people in Yemen as there were in George W. Bush's Iraq war when this is all said and done. And it's like, it seems like there is more outrage generated against microaggressions and maybe, you know, um, uh, racist comments or something like that than there is about quite literally children being slaughtered. And that's a problem. Yeah, no, that absolutely is a problem. Actually, it's funny you brought up John McCain because that was one of the most sort of surreal moments in the drift of uh, recent like mainstream liberalism uh, for me uh, that happened recently because, you know, I'm old enough to remember the Bush years when, uh, when, you know, most people who are like kind of like mainstream progressive liberals uh, were rightly horrified about Bush and the Iraq war and, and everything that went with that. Uh, and after, uh, after John McCain died, I remember they published, they, uh, there was this big military spending bill that came through and literally like the liberal talking point wasn't, Oh my God, this is horrifying that we're like pouring even more money into the war machine at the time when, as you point out, uh, the, the, the Saudi Air Force with all sorts of aid and, and weapons and money from the United States uh, is, is doing a bombing campaign in Yemen that's like verging on like genocidal in terms of the kill count uh, combined with sanctions that, that have led to like medieval diseases coming back. It's like really horrifying stuff. Uh, and the liberal talking point was literally like, oh my God, that's so bad that, that Trump didn't like give John McCain credit for this like yeah. you worked on. <laughs> or the, the liberal it's, the liberal talking yeah. point. Like like it seems to me like the the liberal take on this stuff is like we want more female fighter pilots. Or we want more <laughs> transgender, you know, like people <laughs> dropping the bombs uh, over there or something. And I think that libertarians like myself and, and good leftists like you can say, no, 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 we don't want any of this. And, and the, the truth is, as you said, I mean, the cholera, there were, there were over a million cases of cholera. Uh, in, mm. Cholera is, is curable 
by, I think, essentially fluids. I mean, you might need some anti uh, uh, antibiotics, but like yellow Gatorade will pretty much solve this problem. <laughs> and you're, you know, and this could be ended in a phone call from the president of the United States. That's, that's it. It's the Saudi regime that we prop up that's doing all of this. We were for a, a long time actually refueling their fighter pilots because they couldn't even do this stuff without us. And I mean, I, you know, not to be too graphic, but what, you're, what we're talking about here are babies puking and shitting themselves to death. It's yeah. like the most evil thing you could imagine on the planet. And I will give credit to, uh, to Bernie Sanders, who, who was pretty great in the Senate. Uh, on this issue. Uh, he didn't make it a major issue in his campaign, which I would have liked him to, but he, he did have a pretty good track record on this. And um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, the, the real issue with it here, right, is that Obama started it and Trump's continued it. So there's no partisan, you know, points to be scored from bringing it up. But both Barack Obama and Donald Trump should be charged with war crimes. I mean, this, this is like no joke. They should both be charged, convicted, and put to death for what they did to the people of Yemen. It's absolutely horrific. Yeah, yeah, or at least uh, life in prison maybe, but yeah. Sure, okay, sure. yeah, yeah, all right, fair <laughs> yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. I don't really yeah, like yeah. the death penalty either. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's that's right. Um, but I guess, um, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, abs that's yeah, 100% co-signed on that. Uh, and of course, if you think about why uh, that wasn't more of an issue in the campaign, some of it, like you said, is because there's there's no, you know, particular partisan angle, right? You know, because uh, you know because this is something that happened, um, you know, under under both Obama and Trump. Um, but I think also part of it is that the unfortunate reality is that it's very hard to get. I think most Americans excited about this right especially because there's no um you know like like it when like a few decades ago several decades ago right you know when people were like con very concerned about being drafted to be sent to vietnam and uh and that was that was also on their tvs every night right that was that was maybe one thing right but i think i think right now uh unfortunately it's pretty you know it's pretty abstract to a lot of people uh and uh, and so, you know, you're probably, unfortunately, not going to get that far leading with that, right? I mean, there, there were there were years when when my main, you know, political activity was, uh, you know, reading Glenn Greenwald columns and arguing with my liberal friends about them at the bar, and uh, and like certainly my experience, you know, was was that like, you know, you, it was very easy to get to that point of people saying, yeah that's bad. I agree. But right. You know, and, and it's, it's not, it's not necessarily a big, a big priority. Right. You know, like, and, and I think there may be a couple of different ways. Uh, Dave Smith, by the way, somebody asked does have a Twitter. It's at comic Dave Smith. Um, but, uh, but I think there may be a couple of ways that you could try to tie that into a larger political program. Uh, and, this, you know, maybe will get us, you know, well, definitely, right? You know, will get us to uh, the other 90% of politics that we disagree about. Uh, and, and so, so one of them, right, which I think, I think would your, be your way is to, is to sort of tie it into a general critique of the state as such, right? You know, that, 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 that statism and the state and all its works, you know, uh, should, should be rejected. Uh, and and that gets you the kind of libertarian uh, take on this, um, and and another way 
um, you know, is, is to have the kind of Bernie Sanders sort of way, right. Which is, which is to say, Hey, um, we've got like guns versus butter trade-offs, you know, we, we can, um, you know, that rather than, you know, rather than spending all of this money on, on these foreign wars that are supposed to make us safer, but, uh, you know, really don't, right. You know, and, uh, and also are horrifying in themselves, right. You know, that, that we should, you know, that we should spend them on, uh, on social spending at homes, home. And of course you could have a debate about which of those things are more, um, helpful, right. You know, politically, um, but I think maybe the more, you know, the more interesting debate, right. Rather than, uh, rather than doing the like sort of third drawer, you know, James Carville thing and trying to, uh, you know, trying to argue about how it's going to, you know, what's going to play with who, where, right. Is, is to argue about the, uh, the principle of the thing, right. Like, and, and that's, you know, that's what we've, we've gotten into it about, right. In, in the past. Right. So, uh, because your objection to, um, your objection to, to taxation, certainly to, to any kind of like government redistribution isn't just that some of it's going to be put to horrifying purposes, that it's going to be used to murder people, right? Like that's, you know, I mean, if that were the beginning and end of it, right? Like that's, that's not exactly a small thing, right? But that's, it's not just that, right? Like even, even if we had um, some situation that I would love, right? You know, where like we, we wound down all the foreign wars uh, and, and we weren't uh, assassinating people with drones anymore. Um, and, and we weren't doing this like super aggressive regime of police and incarceration, but uh, we, we were still, you know, we, we were still um, spent, you know, doing lots of redistribution at home. There were all sorts of taxpayer funded programs uh, to finance healthcare and education and all that other good stuff that I like. Right. Uh, I think that, from your your perspective, you'd still have a problem with that, not necessarily because of the outcome, right, but because of the because of the process, because you think that taxation itself is unjust. Um, well, sure. I mean, look, I I think of uh, as we discussed on my podcast, I I am a libertarian. I believe taxation mm-hmm. is theft. That being said, obviously, I would prefer if someone course, mugged right. me that they not spend the money on murdering somebody else. <laughs> and if they spent the money on like grandma's hip replacement, that certainly would be preferable. Right, right, right. right. Um, the so, back to that hierarchy. Yes, there thing. you go. Sure, yes. Right. So, yeah. uh, and and by the way, even just a quick aside, but even Ron Paul, the most libertarian person to ever be in Congress or run for the presidency. Even he basically said, let's cut the military budget and tied over entitlement programs. Like even he was like, okay, prescriptions for grandma are a lot better than dropping bombs on human beings. Um, So yes, I I reject uh, on on moral grounds, the idea of the government, you know, uh, of government taxation. But even aside from that, I think one of the problems that, that, um, your your types are going to have is that there is a like I was um, I remember when I, when I was on Jimmy Dore's show recently and he said you know libertarians basically say that um, the government is inherently evil but it's just a vessel you know it can be used for mm. bad or good and uh, what I would say my response to that would be like well technically that's true but that's also technically true about authoritarian dictatorship. I mean, it, it's a vessel. It could theoretically, because like theoretically, you could say we have a dictator who's going to just dictate nothing but good things. Mm-hmm. But the problem that we would all see with that is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so if you give 
this this state the monopoly on on theft, which is how I see it, and you give them this enormous power, I think more often than not, you're going, I mean, look what happened when, even when this pandemic first hit, what's the first thing they do? Go bail out the banks. Oh my God, people are dying in nursing homes. We better give the bankers a couple trillion dollars. That ought to show it. And, and this, to me, I, I empathize with your humanitarian impulses. I want to help people who need to be helped. I, I don't believe it, that the state apparatus will ever achieve those goals. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think that one maybe productive way to, to, to think about that is to hone in on part of what you said that I agree with, right? Which, which, which is that there's a, you know, the reason that we wouldn't, you know, trust having dictatorships that might decide to be benevolent, right? Is, is that, is that power corrupts, uh, you know, and then, and then I guess from my perspective, I, I think, uh, two things there, right? One is I would argue that, uh, that other forms of power also have, you know, corrupting effects. Um, go back to what you identified earlier as the the case uh, that uh, that seemed more disturbing about uh, Louis C.K. about the uh, uh, that that involved a workplace situation, right? You know, and and there is a reason why uh, certainly if somebody is an employee, right, you have power over them that way, right? That that would be more disturbing, right? You know, and and I generally think. Uh, there's there's a concern that if you have uh, forms of power that aren't necessarily organized in the state, right, that some people depend on other people for their livelihood, uh, that's going to lead to a lot of abuses, whether of the Harvey Weinstein form uh, or what I, you know, from my perspective, the, the Jeff Bezos form, right? You start thinking about some of the work conditions uh, at, at Amazon warehouses. And so to my mind, the the solution Right to um, to power corrupting uh, is uh, is to be to distribute power, not kind of however, like let the chips fall they fall where they may with the market and like whatever you end up with that right. But to try to distribute power as evenly as possible, which I think you can have uh, through through a democratic state, right? Especially uh, if you know, especially if we frankly, right, to, to get into our really deep disagreements, right, if we did something about capitalism, so so political discussions weren't uh, distorted by having part of the population that had tremendous wealth and power and hence political influence that the rest of the population doesn't, and by extending democracy uh, to uh, to even the workplace, right, you know, through, through things like, um, you know, businesses being organized, uh, not as traditional businesses, by, but as cooperatives, which I know Again, I know you're not against the outcome, right? You know, but you think that there's, but but you are very concerned about like the property rights, right? Of of existing oh. of of existing owners, right? That would be that would be your objection sure. to that, right? And well, I know I mean, that's, like, a, that's I know that's a deeper issue, right? But like, sure, I would, sure. I, I would I would just say, right, that like, yeah, I think power corrupts. I think that's why we need to create an economic structure where power is distributed more evenly, certainly than it is right now. Well, I, I agree. I would like to see an economic structure where power is distributed more equally. I mean, I, I think that that's a good goal. But look, if you talk about, you know, objecting to the means and not the end, I mean, you know, it's like, I'm not against sex, but I'm against rape. And if they both end in the same thing, that doesn't like the means are pretty important when you get down to, you know, the, the morality of the situation. I think that if you're doing whether, it the right way, the consensual version involves a lot less trauma at the end, but okay. That so is, it's that not is quite true. the same outcome, but yeah. Well, well, okay. But I mean, 
mean the, the actual physical act. All right, yes, this is right. going off into a place I didn't mean to uh, take it to. But I would say that you're absolutely right that there are many forms of power that are other than, than state power. Um, but we could still uh, see a difference between voluntary interactions and forced interactions. And even if you say that the, you, you have a democratic state, um, okay, but that is essentially just the rule of the majority being imposed on the minority. And throughout history, I don't think that there's a ton of evidence to suggest that the majority is usually, let alone always, correct, and that they respect the rights of the minority. Uh, pretty much any time history goes bad, that's not what's happening. And the pow so the power dynamic uh, for, say, someone between boss and employee is very real. Um, but if there was a boss who wouldn't allow you to quit, now mm. we're into the realm of slavery. And if mm. you have a state where the minority who didn't necessarily support the policies, and by the way, the way democracies usually work out, even if the majority votes someone in, it doesn't really mean they support what they're doing afterward. Mm. So I just, I, I understand your issue with power in general. What I don't understand is that if you have this issue with power, how you're not opposed to the state, which is a much more naked, much more dangerous version of this power. This is an institution that can rob from you. They can throw you in a cage. They can draft you to go die in one of their horrible foreign wars, or like we said before, even worse, be on the other end of one of their wars. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, you know, like that power to me seems to be a, a much worse, a much graver threat. And I think a lot of history backs me up on that. Yeah, look, I mean, states can clearly can clearly do uh, awful things, can clearly be the vehicles, you know, for some of the greatest state atrocities we can have, no doubt whatsoever about that. Uh, I, I'd push back on whether that means that the better thing would be to try to, uh, to just not have one. Uh, I, th I think that uh, obviously it's a much bigger discussion, but, you know, but, but I, I think that uh, the, that if, we still, especially in a situation where we still had all sorts of disparities of wealth and resources and economic power, I think trying to just not have a state, uh, I think would maybe mean that we don't have a centralized state, right? You know, we've, we, we, you know, but we have, you know, frankly, I think the Mad Max sort of objection to that, right, you know, holds some sway to me, right? Especially uh, since presumably people have to have their security needs met in some way. Uh, and so if, if there isn't a state where at least those security forces, it's a very imperfect check, right, you know, but at least there, there's some sort of theoretical accountability to the public in general and not just to the particular uh, people who are paying for them, that still seems preferable to me. Uh, but well, um, I, I, can I just say I understand your concerns, but I mean, like, let's take a look at this, the state security force that we have. I mean, currently, as we're speaking, when, you know, there, there's like a uprising across the country mm -hmm. against these state security forces, which are forced on people. It doesn't seem to me to be that the most vulnerable, uh, the most vulnerable communities particularly appreciate these uh, state security forces when they're not, you know, they, they uh, you know, for all the like the militarization of our police, when there's riots and looting, they do nothing, they just stand back. When there's peaceful protests, they're throwing 90 pound girls on the floor uh, and they're, they're, you know, they're putting their necks on, on the, this guy's neck and for nine minutes there, you know what I mean? Like, and, and, and that's just one story. I mean, there's, there's, yeah, uh, right. So, 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 so clear, it, it can go pretty bad that way. Oh, as it well. could go. It could go horrifically bad. No doubt whatsoever about that. Uh, but the the question, to my mind, is 
what the route is to something better, right? And what's going to lead to something better versus what might actually make it worse, right? So uh, I would point, for example, to uh, the history uh, in the, you know, kind of the Gilded Age, right? When it was much more common to have essentially like private armies, you know, with the Pinkertons uh, for, for evidence that, uh, that oftentimes, you know, the private version, you know, what few checks on their behavior that you might get right now, you might not even get. Conversely, I would point to some uh, European social democracies where cops don't even necessarily uh, go armed, right, on routine patrols, right? You know, now, I'm not saying that it's always, the combinations are always going to work like that. Sure. There's, some, so there's some guarantee, right? But I, I think what I'm, what I'm hopeful about, right, is that, uh, is that as, part, as part of a general process of reducing poverty and economic inequality and all of that, right, that... And granted, it'd be very hard in the United States because of the, um, you know, because this is such a generally well-armed country, right? You know, so you have problems with that approach here that you wouldn't in other places. Um, right. But, so but, I actually, but that I, those two could go together in a positive way. But you were well, saying, Well, I, I kind of agree with you. I mean, look, it's a, it's a bitter pill that I've got to swallow, but it turns out that your, uh, your beloved Sweden is the most free market country in the world right now. So uh, they're, they're the ones well, who have been allowed to... Uh, oh, oh, you mean in terms, in terms of the coronavirus lockdowns? Yeah, well, I'm just making the point that it doesn't yeah. necessarily... Having state interference or intervention in one area doesn't necessarily lead to more of it in another. Um, and so I, I certainly get your point on that. I, I guess I would say say that, look, inequality in itself, mm. to, just, to just be against inequality is slightly imprecise. And there are certain forms of inequality that I'm sure that you wouldn't even object to. Like if you, you know, you just started this, this show, congratulations, you're going to put on a, an amazing show and a lot more people want to watch your show than want to watch some terrible show out there. That's fine. That's yeah, like, I, I, not I, a I, problem I don't, with that. I don't, I don't want to redistribute uh, viewers uh, from, from, right. uh, for, th for this show to other show. And, so, and I think we would so all that's, agree. That's certainly, that's, that's certainly right, right? So, that, so, yes. so, so, there, so there are some forms of inequality that are okay, and there's some forms that, of it that are not uh, okay. And we would probably both agree with that. I would just say that one of the, like, to me, the major driver of inequality of the not okay variety in the, the, in the United States for sure right now, and I think we'd both agree on this, is the, um, it's the marriage of corporations and the state and the fact that so many of these huge players are granted legal privileges, the cartelization of the entire economy, and so many, I mean, there are these, they, listen, every one of these big banks basically just rakes in hundreds of billions in profit. And it's all off a, a state cartel federal reserve system. So I'm not, a, I agree with you that it, that certainly um, we would probably live in a better world with less of the unfair inequality mm. that we have. With them. Yeah. So, so I mean, obviously the disagreement there is going to be what it takes for, for inequality to, uh, to be unfair. Uh, sure. And I'm relatively unbothered by, inequality in popularity, inequality in, I don't know, whatever, like their uh, inequality in, uh, in, in which hockey teams, you know, get to like drink from the Stanley Cup, you know, uh, at the end of the season, stuff like that. Uh, I think that when you get into inequality in resources, that's going to lead to uh, inequality in power and political influence uh, and, and ability to control what's going on in a lot of people's lives at workplaces. I have a much bigger problem with that. Uh, obviously, uh, we also have, you know, disagreements um, 
some, you know, some of the stuff, you know, a couple of the subjects that you just mentioned, you know, that the, the coronavirus lockdown, some of the post uh, George Floyd, you know, unrest. Um, but, um, but uh, I really appreciate you, you, you coming on to, to, to like start to hash a little bit of this out um, for a much better response to some of the, the taxation and theft stuff that I actually gave in that debate. Uh, you can check out a article that I wrote for Jacobin on, uh, came out on tax day, July 15th. Um, forgive the clickbaity title that, <laughs> that, that, uh, uh, friend uh, Boscar put on it, uh, but um, but but it, it it does lay out. I think what what if I could if I could uh, if I could redo that. I wish I'd said uh, so. Uh, so maybe uh, you can come back sometime and we can talk more about this. I'd I'd be happy to, uh, and and I'd love to have you back on my show as well. Congrats on the new show. And can I just say uh, before I uh, leave, just um, uh, my condolences on uh, on Michael. That's uh, I was just you know, horrified to hear that. I never, I never met Michael, um, but he's kind of the reason me and you know each other yeah. with those back yep. and forth segments that we did. And he was a really talented uh, uh, guy and um, just, just horrible that he died so young. So rest in peace mm-hmm. and my condolences to all you guys. And thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Dave. That was, uh, that was Dave Smith uh, as a comedian uh, and the host of the Part of the Problem uh, podcast. You uh, can check him out at, at ComicDaveSmith uh, on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, and part of what I want to do with this show is, is to not spend 100% of my time talking about talking to people uh, who already agree with me, uh, heads having Dave on. Uh, but right now I'm going to shamelessly pivot to talking to somebody who I agree with about most things. Uh, Lee Phillips, uh, who is the author, a uh, co-author of uh, The People's Republic of Walmart, uh, which is the smartest book certainly I've ever written, uh, read about uh, economic planning. Uh, and he's also written a lot of really good stuff about uh, eco-austerity, about some of the debates on the left about things like... Um, whether uh, one of the goals of a Green New Deal should be for us to be nuclear-free or whether we actually uh, need to rely on nuclear power in the immediate future as part of an overall strategy to wean off of fossil fuels for the sake of climate change. Uh, And also uh, had a really good intervention recently in Jacobin about um, free speech uh, and uh, and some of the recent debate about that following um, the, the Harper's letter. If you watch the episode of uh, Weekends uh, with uh, Nando Vila and Anna Kasparian, who's coming on after Lee, uh, that, that was just aired this afternoon, um, there's, there's a really good discussion you know, between the three of them there about that last issue. Uh, but what I want to jump into now uh, is um, I, I kind of thought this was perfect, right? This wasn't planned, but I really liked how it worked out since... Uh, uh, since, you know, Dave's a libertarian, so I just finished arguing with him about, uh, you know, whether we can, like, have taxation at all, whether, like, it's, it's uh, whether any sort of redistributive, you know, programs or attempts to, like, increase workplace democracy are a violation of, you know, capitalist property rights and therefore unacceptable. Uh, and, um, and so I thought this is great. We're going to go straight from that to a discussion <laughs> with Lee Phillips about... Um, 
the frontiers of economic planning, whether even market socialism wouldn't be good enough, you know, so, so I, I, that's, a, that's a perfect lineup there. From, uh, wow, from uh, libertarian total anti-statism to, uh, well, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm pretty libertarian with my, my socialism as well, but I do. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're, you're a libertarian in all, the, in all the good ways, right? Like yeah, you want to, exactly. uh, you, you know, you. Free speech, due process, uh, yeah, yeah. presumption of innocence, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. Yeah, exactly, so right? We so, probably get along really well on all those things, but on the economic planning thing, you probably, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There'll be some, there, there'll be some serious disagreements there for sure. Um, so I guess, I guess one way, you know, um, so first of all, um, anybody who, who's thinking, all right, so they, so we co, Lee co wrote a book about economic planning. That sounds really dense. I'm not going to read that. It's not, uh, the people's Republic of Walmart. Uh, it, it's a thin book. Uh, it's a quick read. It's, it's, it's very like entertaining and there's a lot of good history in there. Uh, and, and it's, it's like a really interesting, really challenging book. Um, strongly recommend that people check that out. But uh, on the assumption that, you know, people are watching who, who aren't familiar with the basic arguments that you make in there, uh, one way to start this out would just be to think, all right, so when you hear some people here talk about socialism, um, well, you know, if so, you know, if you don't have the reservations that Dave Smith has about, about any of this, right, you know, if, if you're fine with, uh, with social democracy, Right, you know, with, with things like single payer national health care, uh, and um, f- you know, tuition free public higher education. Um, by the way, uh, so uh, I I like uh, you know like that you're drinking on there. I've I've been uh, when I was when I was on the uh, the Michael Brooks show. Um, you know, we always did the uh, the talk show cliche and uh, just poured whiskey into coffee cups, but. Uh, you know, uh, like, you know, probably most guests do on Bill Maher. So I always prefer to do like uh, Christopher Hitchens did when he was on Bill Maher uh, and, uh, and just uh, and just drink on air. But, uh, but in any case, um, when some people hear this, right, all right, so if you, you're okay with that as a baseline, then there's a certain kind of case that you can make um, kind of one level up from that, that that's not good enough. So, for example, if you read our, our friend and editor, Bhaskar Sankara's book, uh, The Socialist Manifesto, uh, there's a uh, historical case that he makes throughout that book that social democracy is good, but it's not good enough. That we have uh, that, uh, that when you attempt to sort of push social democracy to its limits, which obviously we're hilariously and tragically far from having this problem in the United States right now, but when you do, uh, and you know, you really try to, to impose as much redistribution, as much empowerment of workers as, as you can get under a basically capitalist system, right? A system where, by and large, business enterprises are owned by a class of private external owners, right, rather than the people who work at them or rather than by the state. Um, then you're going to get this process that I think Rosa Luxemburg classically described as like, it's like the labor of Sisyphus that you, that, you know, that social democracy can kind of push the boulder up the hill. Right. But then, um, then the imperatives of capitalism, you know, since you've still got a capitalist class in place, right. You know, given half a chance, they'll just push it back down again. And you're starting over from not zero. It's very complicated in a lot of cases of actually existing social democracies. There's been some retreat, not total retreat, 
but uh, but you're there's constantly going to be this problem about your previous work being unraveled, and so one solution to that uh, is to um, is to have um, to expropriate um, the the capitalist class, right? In other words, to say, all right, uh, because as Dave Smith was rightly saying. Uh, power corrupts, right? You know, and uh, and in particular because concentrated economic power is always going to lead to concentrated political power. Uh, if Jeff Bezos is a trillionaire, right, he's not going to have the same level of political influence that you or me or you know anybody watching the show is going to have, right? He's going to have a lot more, and that's going to really distort the way we do political debates. So if we take away Bezos's stuff, right, either do what uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez suggested. Uh, in a Martin Luther King Day discussion this year with Ta-Nehisi Coates and turn Amazon into a workers' co-op, uh, or we um, or, or we just nationalize it, right? Then we solved that problem, right? But uh, but then I think you're going to argue we've we've still got a bunch of other problems, right? Like in other words, like 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 one problem that we have when we look at the existing society is hierarchy. Right? Not all hierarchy is bad. It's it's fine to have hierarchy and basketball tournaments and uh, have some hierarchical power relations between parents and toddlers. So the toddler's not allowed to just wander into the street uh, if they decide that's what's best. But you know we think that certain kinds of hierarchical social arrangements should be looked at with suspicion. Right? Should should need to justify themselves and diminishing that. Right? To, such that if all right, we need to have some people who have decision-making capacity that other people do. We, we can at least elect them, right? That's a good thing, right? And that's a good starting point. But I think even when somebody's con- convinced of that kind of second-level argument, you'd still come in and say, yeah, but um, that's a real problem. What you're talking about would be progress, right? Like, especially if you take the AOC suggestion, like we turn Amazon into a worker co-op, right? That's good. That's, that's a step in the right direction, but it's not good enough. So, yeah. so what's the remaining problem that we still have at that point? Well, pre- well, first of all, let me just before I get started on that, uh, let me just make sure that um, I give a shout out to my co-author Michal Rosworski, uh, co-author of uh, People's Republic Walmart. Um, yeah, he's, uh, so and read his stuff. He writes for Jackman as well and for Tribune in the UK and a lot of Canadian uh, left-wing publications. Uh, he just had a brilliant piece, I think. Uh, even if I say so myself, because he's a great friend and my you know, colleague uh, in Jackman about uh, economic planning. Mm. And um, uh, anyway, uh, a workers' co-op basically solves the problem of uh, the hierarchy problem. It is a wonderful um, a mechanism of uh, self-education of the working class, uh, teaching us that we um, uh, we can we can run things ourselves without the need for bosses. Uh, the bosses have need of us, but we don't ha- have need of them. Um, so that's, it's a school of building self-confidence. It is uh, uh, teaching us that um, at a smaller scale, at an enterprise scale, the democratic decision-making about economic issues is, is, is feasible. That's what it solves. That's not nothing. That is a huge thing. Um, the domination of the workplace by uh, by bosses is it, 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 
it's you know the central question of, of of alienation that we are cogs in somebody else's machine that we don't truly control our lives and this goes back to you know the original sort of um uh, uh, the, 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 the wellspring of socialism, of Marxism, um, out, of, out of the Enlightenment, out of Hegel, um, that it, it is ultimately a question of freedom and that uh, the, 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 you know, the grand story of human, human history is, is, is that struggle for freedom and uh, elimination of domination and, uh, and, and, and hence alienation. That's only one thing that it solves, though, the workers' co-op. Um, a workers' co-op Let's, let's, let's imagine instead of Amazon, let's imagine a workers' cooperative uh, pharmaceutical company. Right. Um, so, but it, uh, it, it's all run by the workers, um, but uh, it dis still distributes its, um, its pharmaceuticals and decides what um, pharmaceutical research and development and manufacture it, it, it engages in on the basis of normal market allocation. Mm. So democratically decided internally, but still it will only sell to whoever can pay and it will make decisions about what to research on the likelihood of the most profitable um, commodity that they produce. So at the moment, we don't have work, a workers co-op um, pharmaceutical um, company right. or a series of uh, pharmaceutical um, workers co-op uh, pharmaceutical companies. What we have is private um, shareholder owned um, pharmaceutical companies, and they also make a decision on what is uh, what they're going to produce, what research they're going, what sort of research they're going to uh, engage in, um, and also who gets to uh, have access to their commodity on the basis of who can pay and what is likely to be the most profitable. So, in terms of allocation, it's not merely that there is little, there is zero difference between those mm. two. And right now, the fundamental, so we could say the same thing with hospitals or clinics, right. uh, anywhere basically in the, the healthcare sector. And the problem that we're dealing with, with respect to Medicare in the United States, or healthcare, let's say more broadly, in, in the United States, yeah. is not, the, the primary problem that we're facing in the United States is not the nurses and doctors don't elect who governs the, uh, the hospital or the mm -hmm. clinic. It's that most people, uh, most working people don't have access to, to healthcare. And so that's, right. so the first thing or, is the, or, or have, the second one is the allocation yeah. question. Yeah. Or that, or that the allocation of healthcare is, um, yeah. is tied up with employment. So, uh, which means that if, you know, tons and tons of people lose their jobs, you know, as in the coronavirus crisis, they also at least are temporarily dislocated from their access to, to healthcare and, People stay in jobs that they hate because they, they, you know, because it's tied up with their health insurance. People, uh, there are people who, who who stay in bad marriages because you know they get their health insurance through their spouse. So, which which actually is is both of these things, right? It's it's a problem about hierarchy, not mostly in, in the hospital, right? You know, but in terms of the wider world, where having healthcare be tied to employment, um, you know, kind of puts people under the thumb of others. Uh, in in their workplaces, right? Uh, but also that there's a even if that didn't exist, right? Just the fact that millions and millions of people don't have any access at all, right? They maybe have to be treated in an emergency room, uh, but that's that's it, right? You know, they they don't they can't afford um, preventative medicine uh, is is a huge problem in itself, and a problem that wouldn't obviously be solved just by like if we had hospital co-ops and insurance co-ops and all that stuff, because the same market pressures 
uh, would, would apply to them, right? You know, that, that if the primary, per, the primary problem is not that pharma executives are bad people, I'm sure they are, but the, uh, but the primary problem, you know, uh, they, you know, maybe they are, maybe they are, right? But the primary problem are whether or not they started that way, they might have to become that way to rationalize to themselves what they have to do. Uh, but the primary problem is uh, the incentives that are baked into the system, and that wouldn't be solved with, um, you know, with worker co-ops. And a point I've also heard you make very, very powerfully before uh, is that uh, the fact that you know, so many of us haven't been able to, you know, go outside, you know, uh, well, you know, go outside maybe to walk the dog, but certainly not to go outside to, uh, uh, to, to go out and socialize normally, you know, with other people uh, for, for months and months. Uh, where, and other people, you know, have been in this horrific situation where they have to, you know, because they're essential workers, uh, is because uh, even after MERS and SARS, uh, the pharmaceutical industry didn't, you know, start pouring resources into uh, into uh, looking at respiratory diseases and you know and and, uh, and antiviral drugs and all that stuff. Uh, and again, it's not it's not primarily because of like bad moral character. It's primarily because of profit incentives. Um, and and one way to to maybe think about this, right? And and actually, I'd, I'd be curious if if your take on on this part is different, right? Is that um, is that when you think about the short term, right? Like not necessarily the kind of society that we'd all want to live in in fifty or hundred years, or you know, Dave would want to live in, but we would, uh, you know, where uh, where we might have taken all kinds of things out of the market. Uh, because because we figure out ways that we can just plan them and allocate them fairly to everybody without having to get markets involved at all, right? You know, but like in the short term, when we maybe haven't figured out how to do all of that yet, uh, we uh, there are maybe some things where uh, where we think that if we can possibly figure out how to take them out of the market now, we'd really want to uh, because it's just so important. Uh, so an obvious case, uh, you know, would, would be hospitals, right? That if, uh, that uh, even though like the national health service in Britain uh, has been ravaged by, by, by Tory uh, cuts uh, and, and, you know, stealth partial privatization, you know, over the decades, uh, which you talked about. New, and by new labor under Tony Blair. As well. Right. Absolutely. Right. Uh, then, even then, right? Even despite that, right? Like that, like they're, they're still not in a position right now where there are lots of hospitals that are just going to have to be closed because, uh, you know, just just because right now, just because of uh, they're not making profit, right? You know, because yeah. the hospitals it's bananas. I, I mean, when I was reading about this happening in the United States, I thought, and I, as I don't know if your readers, uh, your readers, your viewers know, but I'm I'm in Canada, and I thought, what? That's bananas that there are four private hospitals that are having to close at the moment during coronavirus. It is, yes, this irrational allocation question again. Yeah, absolutely, right? So, uh, and if you have, well, even in Canada, right, where my understanding is most hospitals are still technically private, but they're nonprofits, uh, and in any case, they're relying on the government, you know, as, as the single payer. They're private. They tend to be private, um, uh, sort of charitable entities, sort of hang over a lot of um, sort of religious, um, yeah, charities. 
but they're yeah, as you say, they're not they're not for profit. But not all of them. That's not true. Uh, Some okay. of them are uh, public hospitals. Uh, yeah, and and I think the essential point here is that even in the Canadian case, uh, even though you know, even though most of the hospitals maybe are privately owned. Um, they're they're insulated somewhat from from market forces because uh, they they get the uh, because there is one payer right that that's that's paying them right that's they have a you know you have a single payer uh, system in uh, in Canada which is by the way is always I think maybe especially growing up in Mid Michigan uh, about an hour away from the nearest Canadian border so you know so I I spent a lot of time you know going to you know Canada growing up. I think maybe this is like particularly like in my face and like I, I, I've often been very frustrated in the last few years when people say, oh, okay, well, what Bernie Sanders talks about is great, but we need incremental change. <laughs> Switching to the Canadian healthcare system, is it incremental? You know, I'd understand if you say we can't have workers control the means of production tomorrow because we need incremental change, but that's not incremental. But like even the Canadian system, much less the British system where the hospitals themselves, you know, are largely, uh, government-owned, um, because those systems are insulated from market forces to some extent, they can, uh, uh, that they can operate, um, you know, they can operate on a loss. Uh, they, you know, like, like, like they, they don't, um, that if, if there's like a, if there's a crisis, you know, and, and, and lots more, uh, you know, more, lots more people need care in a hurry, uh, and um, then we, you don't have to worry necessarily about the economics of it in the same way, right? You know, because you have other reserves that you can use to prop that up. Um, but even somebody who can maybe see the sense of saying, okay, hospitals shouldn't be subject to market forces uh, might still think, okay, but if your long-term ambition maybe is an entire economy where everything is to use the, 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 um, the social, you know, I know it's kind of the, uh, this doesn't mean anything to most people, right? But, you know, but to be decommodified, in other words, just like that the allocation is not based on yeah. buying and selling in a market, right? That if everything is is, is decommodified, right, which, which uh, that would go beyond even what they had in the Soviet Union. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they, they still, you know, people were still paid in rubles and used them to, to, uh, to buy products. Uh, and... Even and in like the Soviet system, lots of stuff was planned. Uh, you know that there was there were lots of things that would be determined by markets uh, in uh, under standard capitalism that that were determined by state planning there. Uh, and famously, right? I, I don't think this breaking news to anybody. Right? It, it wasn't a smashing success. Right? Yeah. That uh, that like there there were. You know, and I'm not even just talking about the obvious horrors that that happened. Um, you know, with the the Stalinist show trials and the uh, purges, or even the worst economic catastrophes. You know, uh, involving collectivized agriculture. Um, but you might also worry that, like, okay, even if we imagined a much better version of the Soviet Union, right? Uh, that so a version of the Soviet Union where you kind of had basically what existed there, but you layered parliamentary democracy on top of it, right? Yeah. So you had you had a free press, you had real multi-party elections, and then I guess whichever party won a majority in the Supreme Soviet and, you know, formed a government would then appoint the head of the Soviet planning office, Goshplan, uh, 
I'm sure that would have been better. I'm sure that you wouldn't have gotten uh, this, the sort of real horrors, like, um, you know, what happened with, uh, with uh, forced collectivization or in the Chinese version of the system, the Great Leap Forward. I'm sure those wouldn't have happened in a system where government decision makers had to worry about being voted out of office. Uh, but you might still worry that that wouldn't have, uh, that even if you wouldn't have gotten those horrors, you also wouldn't have gotten necessarily what, what you want in terms of coordination between consumer needs and production and a lot of the sort of fr frustrations and complaints of Soviet citizens uh, that, you know, they, you know, the things that they wanted, you know, couldn't be found in the grocery store shelves and, you know, the things that you, they, uh, that you, that, you know, maybe it was full of stuff that you didn't want or didn't really work, right. you know, because there are very few incentives. Like if you read uh, the novel Red Plenty, you know, by right. Francis Stufford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that book, right? You know, there's a lot of stuff. I, I think anybody who wants to think hard about this should read that book, right? So, uh, so, so maybe those problems would have been reduced, right? You know, because like some of this stuff could have been handled politically. Uh, but presumably that wouldn't have entirely gone away, right? So I know this is a huge question to, uh, to spring on you in like the last like three minutes that we talk, uh, you know, uh, you know and, and, and I hope that you will come on back on to have like a much fuller version of this discussion. But like, basically, why should we be confident that maybe future, better, more democratic, you know, socialist governments uh, could have a form of economic planning that would work better than that. Right. So, wow, to uh, give the entire defense of socialist planning in three minutes, right? Yeah, uh, two and a half minutes now. Two and a half minutes now. <laughs> so I guess uh, to do some triage here. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Um, I'll say that uh, basically we should stop seeing market socialism and socialist planning as antagonists. What we should be seeing them as as uh, sort of parts of a sequential struggle. Also, social democracy and trade union struggle as well. It all interlinks together. And that as we move forward <clears throat> with the, the level of political struggle and also technological change, we will be able to test how much farther, how much uh, uh, the rest of the economy we are able to decommodified, i.e. plan, and in the meantime, obviously, we need to be making uh, priorities as to which are the most important sectors to decommodify. Now, there's a bit of a challenge here in that sometimes the things that are most necessary to decommodify in terms of social justice um, can be sometimes the hardest to decommodify. And ironically, other things that we're not so worried about, let's, like I'm not particularly worried about the allocation problem with Barbie dolls. Um, uh, but uh, that ironically, in terms of prediction, uh, prediction predictive algorithms assisting um, uh, producers, say a decommodified producer, to make a decision about what is the likely you know, series of fashion of Barbie dolls that are going to be uh, desired by <clears throat> young boys and girls um, in the next year, um, that's actually, we already have that. Um, so there's some, some things that are easy to decommodify are not necessarily things we want to prioritize decommodification. Other one, an example where we, you know, the food system is something that we would really, really like to decommodify quickly, uh, in the near term, but it, that is one of the hardest things to decommodify because there are like so many different variables involved there. I can right. go on, but you want to, you want to get, uh, Anna on here. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So we can, uh. So bullish about 
applying state economic planning to Barbie production, uh, more uh, more pessimistic about food production. That's 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 bad news. But um, I, I think that anybody who who obviously wants to get a, a more deeper dive into this, uh, you know, we could have easily spent longer than this entire episode is going to be uh, just on that last question. Uh, but anybody who, who wants to, um, to get more into this should read the uh, People's Republic of Walmart. Uh, so that's our friend Lee Phillips uh, and his co-author, Mikhail Rosworski, um, which again, I mean, it, it's a really interesting book. Whatever you think about this, uh, about you know, what, what a post-capitalist society might look like, in the short term, what we might want it to look like in the long term, how we could get from there here to there, whatever, wherever you end up landing. You know, I, th- I think if you just want to like get a really good, really clear explanation of what the issues are, uh, you should read that book. Uh, and you should also read um, Lee's stuff about, um, you know, about climate, uh, you know, about climate justice, about free speech, you uh, and uh, and and everything else, uh, a uh, pretentious you know phrase that 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 we use in uh, in the, the kind of academic philosophy background that I come out of is uh, epistemic peer disagreement, which is a debate about what you should do when you, when you think that people who are just as well informed as you and have the same goals as you and have access to all the same evidence that you do come to different dis- you know different positions, uh, and one position is you should just hold firm forever and you know stick to your guns. And a more plausible position is, is that should at least count as a reason to think harder, right, about whether you got it right. Um, and, and so Lee is definitely somebody who, um, you know, when, when I find out that he disagrees with me about something, I don't necessarily start agreeing with him, but, uh, but it, it always gives me pause, right? You know, I think, okay, you know, maybe there's a point here that I'm not seeing. So um, really appreciate it. Come back soon. Absolutely. That was nice of you to say. See you, Ben. All right. See you, Lee. Right. That was Lee Phillips, uh, co-author of People's Republic of Walmart. Um, now we are joined uh, by one of my favorite people, Anna Kasparian, uh, who is a host and producer for the Young Turks, is the co-host with Nanda Vila of The Weekend's show on, on, on Jacobin, uh, which, which airs a little bit before this records, which is on purpose because I, I didn't want to have to stop watching that uh, to, uh, uh, to record this. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Ben. I'm really happy to be here. So, yeah, one um, one thing that uh, that you've you've talked about uh, recently on uh, weekends, uh, not this week but last week, uh, is about what we were just talking about. Basically, essentially, with with the last two guests, right? You know, which which was about um, capitalism uh, and and how we, we we could maybe try to you know to get beyond it. Uh, and one thing that we're often told on that subject is that basically like the state equals unfreedom, capitalism equals freedom, uh, that if you want to be able to live your life the way that you want to, you, you want to, for example, have privacy in your information, uh, then, uh, then, then capitalism, you know, the, the sort of current economic system that we have uh, is going to be your friend. And, uh, and I know that's not your uh, recent experience. Uh, and this is something that you've talked about recently on the show. 
uh, why you think it's like a serious mistake to things that think that things are going to shake out that way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's interesting because basically what happened with that segment, um, you know, and that commentary was I was targeted by a hacker and he was pretty relentless, uh, made my life miserable for over a week. And I started really wanting to understand how it is Mm -hmm. that hackers can do anything they want. Like they can find any information on you. It made me curious about the various ways we're being surveilled, uh, the various ways uh, data is being collected on us and how really data has been commodified, right? And so I decided to take like my frustration and anger out on that segment and learn more, just kind of educate myself more about um, data capitalism. And so I came across um, a lot of really great essays on this, and it became abundantly clear to me that since our data has been commodified, um, and since we're essentially unpaid workers in willy-nilly handing over all this private data to uh, various uh, corporations, be it Google or Facebook, um, we literally cannot have privacy. We just can't because there is a very like significant vested interest in collecting that data, meaning surveilling us and then selling that data to third parties. And that's really Facebook's bread and butter. That's Google's bread and butter. I mean, they, they are not what they appear to be. Like on the surface, Facebook is, oh, social networking site. But in reality, they're data brokers and yeah, that's the, uh, that's they're the, advertisers. That's the, bus- that's the business model because if they're, not, um, if they're not finding some way to either directly sell your data, right, or to, to use it uh, to, to get your, your eyeballs on advertisement, then... Facebook and the rest would be charities, right? There'd be no way for them to make money. Uh, and uh, newsflash, right? You know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is not in this for humanitarian reasons. Uh, that you know, these these guys um, are business owners, uh, and and they are and they are trying to make money. Uh, and so, of course, we want to be able to connect to each other in these ways, right? Like like everybody. God knows, especially now that, uh, you know, that just leaving the house, right, you know, is, is so, um, you know, is, is so much more fraught, you know, than, than it used to be, right? You know, we, we all need ways to, to communicate uh, with, you know, with the people that we care about, to, to stay in touch with people we might not otherwise stay in touch with, right? So, you know, social media definitely serves that, but having it be in the hands of these private corporations uh, means that you're a lot uh, more likely. Uh, uh, yes, uh, somebody somebody asked that is my, my my cat Shabazz. The door is open, but he's still being a cat and wandering around and meowing. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but because these are in the hands of private corporations. Uh, you know, this isn't just a matter of saying okay, all complex ecosystems have parasites. You're going to get you know. You're going to get hackers and stalkers and, you know, all kinds of terrible people sort of nibbling around the edges, you know, of, of, of any setup where they think they have an opening. Uh, but this is also due to the data practices of these corporations. Like they're not just innocent mm-hmm. bystanders in this. 
Absolutely. Exactly. And, you know, what was really fascinating to me in like researching um, this particular segment was coming across various uh, CEOs in Silicon Valley who were not only transparent about the surveillance and collection of our data, um, but unapologetic about it, you know, just kind of saying boldly, if you haven't done anything wrong, you have nothing to worry about. But in which, reality, which, which sounds like exactly what, like, like John Ashcroft talking about the Patriot Act, <laughs> you know, yes, like this, this exactly. is exactly what like government um, representatives justifying government surveillance would say, oh, you know, if you, you haven't done anything wrong, you know, then, then what are you complaining about? Uh, even though, of course, like people tell things to Google, essentially. Like if you think about everything you've ever searched for on Google, people tell things to this company that they wouldn't tell to their best friend or their priest. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But even if somehow you're like this, I guess, miracle person who's never done anything embarrassing, who's never searched for anything embarrassing. Um, it doesn't matter because in one way or the other, you know, this type of collection of your personal data makes you vulnerable to bad actors. So um, that's honestly what I was dealing with, right? Because what was going through my mind was, how is it that my address, like this person has my address? And just to give you guys some context, I have gone through numerous headaches to basically conceal my address. I created like, a, I started a shell corporation in order to put the address, to put my property, my little condo under that shell corporation. So when someone search for, searches for me in public records, they're not able to find my address. So then I realized, oh, I made the mistake by ordering something online and having it delivered to me mm. directly. And that's it. You only need to do it once. And that information is connected to your name. And all you need is that website, that company to get hacked. All of that information gets sold on the dark web. And, um, you know, if you're a public figure, you go through absolute hell in dealing with someone who's targeting you. So that's like, I guess, more of an extreme example. But I think what we're also noticing is that our data is being used to create the algorithms that keep us in these like data bubbles, right? And these, um, I guess, ideological bubbles. And so Facebook loves that. That's also right. part of their business model because it triggers, um, you know, your, your brain, the same, like, it's like cocaine. You come across uh, content that's more and more extreme, or you come across uh, content that reinforces your preconceived notions and it becomes addictive, right? And, and you stay engaged in that social media platform. And that's what they want to sell to advertisers as well. You know, so, um, I, you know, there's a lot of really great, you know, scholarly work on this stuff. But the one thing I wanted to, like, really elaborate on, I didn't think I did a good enough job in my segment, so I'll do it here. Data capitalism really focuses on the imbalance of power, right? So, really, the people who have the capability of processing the data and making sense of it are the ones who are, um, you know, experiencing a great deal of power and mm -hmm. that power imbalance negatively impacts the va vast majority of people. So, um, you know, I think anytime you talk about how capitalism impacts certain parts of our lives, certain freedoms, it is important to think about power dynamics and how they play a role. Yeah. And what you're talking about, about, uh, 
you know, the ideological bubbles, the algorithms, you know, that social media use to kind of keep us in those. Uh, that also relates to something that, uh, that I've, I've seen you talk a lot about lately, uh, which is because these are commodities, right? Like this, this is a, this, your use of social media is a product, right? Ultimately designed to be sold to, well, advertisers than to sell all this stuff to you. Um, they, like any uh, profit-making corporation, right? They, they want to make it as addictive as at all possible, right? You know, like, like you, if you can find a way to get people to use your thing more, right? You know, then you're going to do that. Uh, and this feeds into outrage culture in a really bad way because they have all these mechanisms, these like feedback loops, uh, mm-hmm. like the fact that every single social media platform includes some version of like likes and retweets uh, that are designed to, to give you that like little dopamine hit, you know, that like uh, that, Oh, I'm, I'm getting like lots of people seeing this and, 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 and giving me some sort of approval. Uh, and oftentimes uh, the, the things that, that solicit that right are anytime you can be like performatively outraged uh, at someone who has, you know, because most of us are not uh, those miracle people, you know, that you, that you just referred to who've never done anything bad or anything even that could be presented in a way that looks bad, right? Which, which is, right. Uh, which is often, often enough, right? You know, like uh, this, this case that I saw you talking about today of this uh, progressive uh, Democratic primary candidate, Alex Morris, uh, who uh, was vilified uh, lots of people who shall remain nameless for this segment, you know, uh, who should know better uh, went along mm-hmm. with this um, for essentially the sin of allegedly matching and hooking up with people who were four years younger than him, maybe if that. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was just nonsense, like absolute nonsense. I mean, Alex Morse, he's 31 right now, and he became the mayor of Holyoke um, when he was uh, 22, I believe. And so when he was on um, both Tinder and Grindr, uh, he was between the ages of 25 and 30. And so he would just match with people on these dating sites or dating apps. Um, who happened to be college students because he was so young himself. So of course, it's like similar age. It's the same age group. Um, yeah, not, not his so, students, but but students. Not his students, exactly. Um, and so, you know, you hear these arguments about how, well, you know, even if they're not his students, there's a power imbalance there because he was an adjunct professor. And it's like, do you guys understand how little power, like part-time, like lectures, (laughs) like it's just like they act as if it's like, oh my God, this is like some authoritarian dictator has all this power. It's like, relax. Yeah, I was was an adjunct professor for years uh, at at Rutgers in New Jersey. uh, And I mean, I, of course, had zero uh job security or a little bit mm-hmm. you know because because adjuncts were unionized there but 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 very close to zero job security um certainly no no employer health insurance you know like 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 as an adjunct often you're you're getting like the crappiest like version of like what's available on the obamacare exchanges uh there are like literally certainly at that university right they're like literally graduate students who are getting paid more a year than adjuncts were uh so so they the fact that somebody like it is to what's in your head when you hear the word professor, 
being an adjunct is to that what being an Uber driver is to being a taxi driver who might at least, you know, be a member of the Teamsters and all that stuff, right? Uh, so it, it's, I mean, like, that's just one more layer of this, right? That, like, this neoliberal hellscape we're in where, like, most people who have some kind of teaching job are either adjuncts or maybe they have, like, full-time renewable contracts but basically no security. Uh, and, and so the idea that he had, like, tons of power, uh, not only over, over his own students, which was, like, even that's, like, really not that much, right? You know, but, like, uh, but that he had tons of power over any random person who happened to be a college student is a little bizarre. Uh, Liza Featherstone, uh, who was on the show last week, who's a columnist for Jacobin, has a really good article there. It's called something like, The Left Needs to Stop Falling for Absurd Sex Panics. Uh, where she points out that if you're going to really run with this reasoning that anything that could possibly be described as a power differential makes consent impossible, uh, well, one of the standout lines from the piece is, uh, I have bad news for these kids about heterosexuality. Uh, but, uh, you know, or, you know, in general, right? Like, there's so many things you could say are power differentials in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of, you know, lots of things where there are actually more plausible stories that you can tell about power differentials than you can tell between um, an adjunct professor and a student who wasn't even his student who was about the same age as him. Uh, so, so this is like an especially absurd example. But I think the larger problem, the one that relates to what you're talking about with surveillance capitalism, is this kind of general culture of mutual surveillance, you know, that like mm-hmm. um, your, your co-host Nando had a really good line today about how, you know, like if you think about, especially in the context of left political organizing, that we want to change all kinds of really basic things about the society we live in. The only way you can possibly do that is if you convince a majority of the public to agree with you. And I think, okay, who do you want to hang out with? Right? The 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 person who says, here's a great party, come hang out with, you'll have fun. Or the person who says, all right, come over to this place this time. Everybody bring a camera so you can monitor each other and then like report each other if anybody does anything bad. It's just, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, and look, I, I think I'm, I'm particularly like critical of when the left does it because I want us to win, right? right like exactly. I want us to understand power and uh, find strategic ways to actually get things done as opposed to uh, spending the vast majority of our time on Twitter fighting one another. And to be clear, there are incredible uh, leftists who aren't even really on Twitter. They're out there doing the organizing, they're doing what they can um, to think strategically. Probably Mm -hmm. both much happier and much more politically effective than those of us who you know, have to be on there. So yeah, no question. No question about 100%. that, right? Like if, if, if you can get off, you should. Uh, but uh, for, for everybody who, who does feel either just to connect with people uh, or because, for example, there are journalists, you kind of have to be, uh, you know, on, on, on Twitter, uh, like there's, there's, a, there's a third dimension of all of this, which is that uh, because these are private corporations, uh, that means that essentially it's the equivalent of if we lived in what, well, you know, uh, my 
you know, my friend Dave Smith, who with whom I disagree, might think would be okay. You know, I would I would have a big problem with, which would be like some sort of libertarian utopia where everything was privatized. You know, if like the the uh, if the roads were private, right? That would mm-hmm. mean that you couldn't have a you couldn't have a protest where you marched down the street unless whichever rich person who owned the road was okay with it and agree with your cause. Uh, and the way that maybe it's pretty easy to see why that's a problem, it's also a problem when you have these giant profit-seeking corporations. So essentially you have this very small number of rich people who are in charge of deciding what you can say uh, digitally, right? You know, on, on Facebook, on Twitter, you know, on, on all of these that, um, that there are, you know, c- you know community guidelines but those are incredibly vague and subjective. Um, yeah. Are- you know, it, it is interesting because people try to make the argument um, that it's okay if your freedoms are being violated as long as they're being violated by private companies as opposed to the government. So, you know, when I was, um, you know, thinking about how to frame my argument against uh, data capitalism or surveillance capitalism. I thought about the fact that there really is a marriage between the private and public sector when it comes to surveilling you, really. I mean, uh, when you think about what uh, various whistleblowers uh, told us about government spying, we learned about how easily telecommunications companies worked with the federal government uh, and handed over all sorts of data and metadata about us that we were completely unaware of. It, they did it indiscriminately. It didn't matter if you were a good person or a bad person. It didn't matter if there was any evidence or, or probable cause, right? It, it was just everyone's being surveilled indiscriminately. And what that does is whether it's a corporation uh, or the government, it it could lead to forms of intimidation, right? right? Because everything about you, all of this information about you, every thought that you you Google search is in the hands of people who can misuse it and abuse it. And, And that's something that we need to be incredibly careful about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, and yeah, like this, this combination, like it's, it's this perfect storm of the fact that uh, the companies do all this stuff uh, to, to try to make the product more addictive, which in turn like feeds into all of the, like the worst like pathologies of like online political discussion, which oftentimes people dismiss, oh, that's just online, whatever, don't worry about it, right? But of course, in practice, that's where a lot of people get news and information and talk about politics and even organizing, you know, politically now that, um, now that it, it's, it's so much dicier, right, to do that in person, you know, because of the coronavirus. Uh, and that this is all happening in a situation where there's really no guaranteed privacy at all, right? Because mm-hmm. um, the, the companies uh, will gleefully, you know, harvest your information for, you know, to sell advertising. Uh, they're also, as you said, they're, they're in a, uh, they're thoroughly in bed with uh, government surveillance, right? You know, that there's, there's a long history of this, but basically um, anytime uh, the national security state says, hey, we'd like to look at something, uh, you're almost never going to get uh you know, Facebook, Twitter, Google, you know, fighting them on that, right? Like they, they right. generally just say, you know, why would they do that? Right? Like what's in it for them? Uh, it's, it's not their information and, uh, and, and they benefit, you know, from having that cozy relationship, right? So they hand it right over. And because it's a private corporation, 
they're like those road owners, right? You know, there aren't any laws particularly regulated who gets to drive on the road or who gets to hold a protest march down the road. You know, it's, it's there, it's just up to them. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, um, and then also because it's where so much left political discussion happens, which again, I, I, I'm on the same page as you there that it's like, I think a lot of these things are much more general problems. It's certainly not limited to the left. Uh, if you read, for example, um, John Ronson's book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, one of his main examples in there is about uh, somebody named Lindsey Stone, uh, who uh, was just like a random private citizen and what, like she and her friend would go around to different sites and they'd take jokey photographs. Uh, and one of them was at uh, Arlington National Cemetery and there's a sign that says silence and respect. And of course she wasn't actually saying anything, but the gag for the photo was that she had her mouth open like, Right. And, uh, and then, you know, she thought that like 10 of her friends maybe would like see it on Facebook because like most people, she didn't pay very much attention to the photo settings. And she was just like mercilessly dragged about this for like a long time. And in that case, it was mostly by like conservative patriotic military veterans, you know, but um, like really like to the point where like, every time she had a job interview, she'd be like, okay, if they Googled me, they saw this, you know, she like yeah, didn't want to go yeah. out on dates because she thought the other person would like Google her and see this. Uh, it, you know, it's just like completely destroyed this person's life uh, for a long time. So it's certainly not limited to the left, but it's especially concerning uh, on the left because we want the left to win. And this right. kind of thing makes most people just want nothing to do with us. And not only that, I mean, it's antithetical to what the left is supposed to represent. And what I specifically mean by that, I mean, what is the left fighting for, right? Right. We want to make sure that humans live a life of dignity, that they are fed, clothed, that, uh, you know, healthcare is a human right. I mean, we want to make sure that we protect the livelihoods of people, right? I, I mean, I, I assume like that's what the whole core right, of, um, of, of socialism really is. And so why are we joining online groups of people who are calling for individuals to be fired, to lose their right. livelihoods? Like, how right. is that okay? Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, yeah, either, uh, well, and again, it goes right back to what we were talking about, about the social media platforms, because there's the version of it where in both cases, there's this like weird impulse to tattle to authority figures that we don't even necessarily think should exist. Uh, so whether it's, uh, whether it's like ratting people out to, uh, you know, to Twitter to, to try to, you know, to try to get them, you know, banned, uh, or it's, uh, ratting people out to their employers, you know, that, uh, that they've, they've uh, you know, they've tweeted something problematic. And, you know, again, sometimes the things that count as bad here, I mean, all I think is, oh my God, you know, if, if anybody had like, you know, all the time, you know, I was living in Miami in my twenties, you know, like, like, like when I'd like go out to, you know, this like bar in South Miami with my friends and like, just like joke around like human beings do, you know, like right. if, if somebody had like a running transcript of that, right, there's like, I'm, I'm sure I've said like a thousand things that are worse than like anything that I've seen people often like get slammed for and, and, and get these like severe like social ostracism for online. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I had a raver phase, like I loved going to raves and I could never, I mean, 
I'm a little older now, so I probably wouldn't even want to go to a rave. But I just think about like, hey, these nights when, I mean, not during the pandemic, but before when I wanted to just go out and dance um, and maybe have a drink or two and literally like just let loose and not worry about a thing. All that goes through my mind is everyone has uh, a phone. Everyone is ready and willing to film me in like my worst moment, maybe even take me out of context, put it online, and then I'm done. And look, I'm really lucky that, you know, TYT is where I've grown career-wise. And Jank Uger, for whatever anyone might think about him, uh, does not cave in to any type of cancel culture or any type of pressure to fire people because of mistakes they've made. And trust me, there have been, you know, issues in the past. And he's just like, no, um, I know these people. I work with these people. I'm not turning my back on them. And I felt that same level of respect and um, I guess loyalty from Michael, Michael Brooks. And I love that about him because that made me realize like, you know what? It's okay to kind of critique what we're seeing right now online publicly, you know, and he did it um, skillfully, strategically, and he's always incredibly nuanced. But I think that if we want to win, which is what he focused on a lot, we need to be appealing to a broader group of people and we need to understand that we have differences, right? That's not to say that we accept uh, disgusting, you know, racist rhetoric or hateful language. But I do think that, you know, digging through someone's Twitter feed to find, you know, a a nasty tweet from 2009, it says you, you, you have some problems. Like you... You should not be wasting your time doing that. (laughs) Just keep it real. Yeah, no question. Uh, And it's particularly self-defeating. Like, well, like, like in Jenk's case, when, when he, uh, you know, when he was, was, uh, was running for office and uh, people brought back to life things that, you know, things that he had said literally more than a decade ago uh, Mm -hmm. as a conservative. Two decades ago. Yeah. 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 Like, and, and and so it's like particularly bad because like in that case, um, you know, even beyond any impact on him or his campaign or what that could have accomplished, you know, that like the message you're sending to everybody else, right, you know, is uh, yep. is that, hey, all right, let's say that right now you have bad politics and, 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 and you say dumb things. You don't have the option of seeing the error of your ways, right? Being convinced that we're right about politics and then mm-hmm. like coming to have healthier attitudes about all these other things that like maybe you like said stupid or bigoted things about before uh, because we are going to literally continue to hold that against you forever. Like why would you tell yeah. people that if you actually wanted to win them over? Then there's literally no incentive to evolve, to grow, to change. And if if the first you know, few words you hear from someone are incredibly antagonistic, then, you know, you're less willing to uh, open yourself up to their perspective. You know, if someone approaches, like, I think it just makes a lot more sense to try to persuade people to open up a dialogue. And that's not easy to do. It's actually very difficult and uncomfortable at times to engage in some of these, um, you know, these dialogues about controversial issues, especially about race. But you have to, you have to, that's how you win people over. You don't really do anything other than really help uh, 
our enemies in creating these factions within the left. And, And that's really what I've been noticing. It's just this, you know, confusion about who our enemies really are. Um, and, and really, I love that you use this phrase, um, in your latest Jacobin piece and, and Michael used it in his book, confused moralism, right? It's confused moralism. In reality, you're creating, um, a situation where people are just fragmented and don't have any connection to one another. And if we keep perpetuating that, I mean, it's going to make, accomplishing what we want to accomplish in this country, in this world, a lot more difficult than it needs to be. Yeah, no question uh, that, you know, we need to be able to, to make some differentiations that like, sure, there's no moral argument that you can give to Jeff Bezos that's just going to convince him to uh, give away his, I guess now it's a trillion dollars uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, or, you know, turn Amazon into a worker co-op or any of these things, right? Like that's not going to happen. You have to take it from them. Uh, but some random person who like you just happen to get into a political argument with, you know, who doesn't have a trillion dollars and all the incentives that come from that um, is not going to be in that category or, or even somebody who's, who's a media figure, you know, like, like you, you need to be able to make some basic distinctions about, okay, who has some like deeply entrenched worldview that's their whole thing and like short of a life-changing experience they're not going to agree with you versus who just disagrees right like like sometimes yeah. people just disagree because like you know they've they've had different experiences they've been exposed to different sources of information they've heard different arguments they you know they they might even actually uh, start to agree with you if you just kind of like calmly explained your perspective and, uh, and, and, and talk to them like they were a human being and, and, you know, your, your opening move wasn't, Oh my God, you're a scumbag because you, you, uh, you, you don't have the right take on this yet. And one thing, you know, you, you brought up our, our late friend and collaborator, you know, Michael Brooks. Uh, and you know, one thing that I really appreciated about him when he talked about this stuff, I think is maybe because, you know, he, he had this other side, this, this kind of spiritual side, all of this, right. That like somebody like me, I'm very comfortable like making like a strategic argument that all these things are counterproductive. Right. You know, but like he was much more comfortable just like being an unapologetic hippie about it and just talking about, you know, just, just compassion and how people can change and all this stuff. That's really good and really true and really valuable. But like, you know, not everybody can maybe as equally access that kind of language or, you know, think that way or talk that way. Um, and, and it's, it's one of many like really valuable things that I think that he, um, you know, that he brought to what he did, that he brought to the critique that he certainly made on these issues, but, but, but also just, uh, also just in general, right. You know, because, because I think that that's another thing where most people, um, you know, aren't going to have the, you know, necessarily the same hangups about that stuff that, that, that some of us are that like, I think most people can kind of see the power and just sort of saying like, Hey, don't be like this, right. You know, like that, uh, that yeah. this isn't, this isn't how we want to be right. You know, and, and of course it also ties into the larger thing you're talking about because this isn't what we're fighting for in the first place. Right. That like, we, we don't want to, um, 
like in a way like this this whole thing where we should just constantly be surveilling each other to see if like anybody ever had a bad take or told a tasteless joke or you know anything like that like in a way like this really gets into this way of thinking about what's wrong with society that's like would be a much more natural fit for like conservatives who think that oh if there's Mm -hmm. crime and you know other social problems it's because people have like bad characters you know if if, if our whole thing is that we want to well again you know uh reach you know go back to to michael you know be uh uh, you know, ruthless with systems and kind to people, you know, that, uh, that, that we, that we think that, no, it's not just because like some people are just randomly bad people or they have bad culture or anything like this, but that there are bad systems in place, you know, that, that, that lead to outcomes that we don't like. And that what we want is not to try to perfect individuals, right. You know, to like reach in and like change the thoughts in your head. So you're always thinking correct things and, you know, having the right attitude towards everything. What we want is to create a society in which everybody can have their basic needs met and people can have more control over their lives, you know, both at work and everywhere else and have honestly, more privacy so you can because the more privacy that you have the more uh the more of a sense of just a a almost like a cultural safety net you know that like that 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 you understand that everybody's going to relate to you as a human being and and is not going to decide that whatever you were to worst your worst moment is what defines you forever right you know like like that's part of what we want for everybody which is why we're doing all this in the first place Yes, absolutely. I think that's a really great way to put it. And also, you know, I think a really great way to start thinking about this is, you know, practice some skepticism when you come across uh, the latest outrage on, on Twitter, right? And, and ask yourself, okay, could there potentially be some motivations behind publishing this like negative article on this person? Because I can tell you from personal experience, you know, you brought up the blogs that Jenk wrote literally 20 to 25 years ago. And um, right before they were published uh, and, you know, the outrage began, this was about two years ago, I received an email from a reporter who wanted oh. me to comment on the uh, environment at TYT. And I think the wording was, uh, have you had any experiences with Jenk Uger fostering an environment of misogyny at TYT? So I actually responded back and I was like, um, well, to tell you the truth, uh, I really feel that Jenk has empowered me to speak my mind. I have a very strong voice here. I never feel like... I have to agree with him. I've disagreed with him many times with, you know, no retaliation. Like it was just, and that's literally my experience. I mean, I started there doing marketing. I mean, I had no experience in marketing. I can't believe he hired me for that. Um, But he saw I was a hard worker. And then all of a sudden I'm doing one segment a day and I'm doing like an hour on celebrity gossip. But Jenk was open-minded enough to have me constantly challenge him. Um, and give me the position that I felt I deserved. <laughs> so now <laughs> I've like yeah, taken yeah. over the main show and I'm like the, the lead host and all of that. And um, 
a, a misogynistic guy doesn't do that. I mean, we disagree and argue all, but anyway, the reason why I'm bring, giving you all this background is because he never published my statement. That statement was never published because what he was doing was politically motivated. And yeah. it was just so frustrating to see that. And it was frustrating to see people turn their backs on, on Jank so easily, just based on, again, blogs he had written 20 to 25 years ago. And we really need to practice a little bit of humility and think about us um, as college students, for instance. Mm. And, you know, the dialogue we engaged in, the activities we participated in, I don't think that they're indicative of who we are as people. I think that people have the capacity to evolve and change and to better themselves. I mean, just in the last three years, I've, I've changed considerably on a number of different issues, politically, um, even to some extent spiritually, although I still, um, you know, identify as an atheist, but Michael's kind of opened me up to that a little bit. Um, and I'm at least looking into it. Like, I just feel like every year I'm, I'm growing and we should want that. We should right. incentivize that. And right now with some portion of the left, we're doing the opposite. Yeah, for sure. And, and I guess the one thing that, uh, that I'd add to that is I, I, I think that it's probably hardest, but most useful to, uh, to try to get into that habit, you know, as best we can, right. Of, um, of, of just like approaching some of this stuff with skepticism thinking, okay, you, you heard something horrible about somebody. Okay. Maybe. Right. You know, but I'm not going to like jump on it and, you know, cancel my support for somebody's campaign or whatever instantly uh, because of it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to think about if there's like an innocent thing that might be, might be put in a bad light here. And it's hardest to do that when you may be like, ah, dislike somebody which you might for all kinds of reasons right that that in the decades right since he's politically evolved since he wrote those blogs right you know jake has done commentary on tons of things that i'm sure tons of people have all sorts of reasons to disagree with right you know that like and and oftentimes um you know people form you know these these, these parasocial relationships with media figures that can lead to like you know to like really feeling connected to them that can also lead to like just like deciding that like somebody who has enough takes that you dislike, you know, like, like is, is, is just a terrible person. Uh, but, but if you can generally get in the habit of not like being quite such an easy mark for this stuff, even for the people that you don't necessarily like, you know, then, then we're all going to be much better off and to, to maybe circle back and, and close on this thing, you know, it, about like the Morsi thing, the Alex Morse thing, right? Or, or, mm -hmm. or even like, um, I remember several months ago uh, when things were looking much more politically optimistic, when, when uh, Joe Rogan uh, said he was going to vote for Bernie Sanders and people did, you know, what they do and, and come up with like a, a gag reel of all the worst things that Rogan has ever said and said, you know, how dare you, you know, accept the support from this terrible person. Uh, and in both cases, right, both that and the Morsi one were cases where people who were who were centrists, you know, who uh, who had a political reason to want to do this, right, were very consciously stirring the pot to try to use this, you know, against the left. Uh, and so then it's easy to kind of say, oh, okay, so therefore this one isn't really on us, right? This is on these like external bad actors who have a bad agenda. But then my question is, okay, but in both cases, why did so many people who really are on the left go along with it, 
right? And mm -hmm. I think that that's the way that maybe the same culture of sort of personalized moralistic nonsense that leads to people um, hearing Adolf Reed say uh, that uh, we should focus on poverty rather than racial disparities in poverty, even while being real about the racial history that led to those disparities and hear, oh, so what you're saying is that racism doesn't matter uh, or um, that leads to people being quite such easy marks uh, for the Alex Morris thing, right? That like this stuff is not just like a bad way to relate to people, a bad way to go through life, although it's certainly all that, right? You know, but it, it, it's also something that really leaves us open to makes us very weak and very, very attackable in ways that I think a version of the left that got over some of this stuff really wouldn't be. Yeah, I think we also need to understand what a threat the left is to moneyed interests. And we, I mean, I think, I just think that there needs to be a fundamental understanding that when you threaten the wealth and power of people who have enjoyed that wealth and power for so long, they will do anything and everything to destroy you, to divide you. And the fact that we are falling for their, you know, disgusting, cynical strategies makes me very sad. It's, it's sad to see it over and over and over again. And, you know, I'm sure people are going to see this and cancel me and okay, that's fine. But then what do you really, what do you accomplish? Like, what is the end goal? And it might trigger uh, something in your brain, you know, the same way real activism and real organizing does. Um, but in reality, you've accomplished nothing. And what we've seen year after year after year on every single issue, but since, you know, civil unrest and race is really front and center right now, um, on race in particular, have we seen improvements on, uh, on how uh, black people are treated in this country or there, an, an improvement in their living conditions? Of course not. You know, when it comes to uh, actually changing and fundamentally restructuring the system that actually would lead to significant benefits, not just in their lives, but in, in everyone's lives. Uh, we're getting all this like superficial stuff that gives you like the cute aesthetics of change. And I'm sick of that. I'm really sick of that. I'm tired of them basically telling me like, Oh no, we, uh, we decided to pardon one person from prison and we publicized the hell out of it. And thus we've done criminal justice reform. Right, right, no, right. that's, we've, I'm, I'm sick of We still got stuff. the highest incarceration rate in the world, but like we let out this person, uh, we, uh, you know, we, we still have this incredibly militarized style of policing, but, uh, but don't worry, right? Any athletic event, even a hockey game, you know, we'll have black lives matter, you know, logos on it. Uh, it, it's it's basically a situation where not only is there is there an attempt to kind of placate uh, discontent with real problems uh, with with really empty symbolism, uh, but but all too often we're we're falling for it, right? That that like people mm -hmm. people really who uh, identify with movements to change these things uh, are really focused on those symbolic victories, right? You know, we we, we can't get um, you know, like we're not going to actually change uh, the underlying, dis you know, proportionate like distribution of wealth and power that disproportionately hurts black people. Uh, but 
we can get you know this street sign changed. We can get uh, this this company to to make some PR gesture of, of of putting up you know Black Lives Matter at their events. We can get this company to fire somebody you know who who said something stupid on Twitter, uh, and 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 all of that really leaves them off the hook because if 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 all we're essentially demanding from people who have power is that they make the occasional gesture in the direction of, of caring about this stuff, uh, then really their only question is going to be okay, but like you're not coming for any of the money, right? It's, it's absolutely, you know, it's, it's not about, um, you know, shop signs and public statements. Um, and, and look, I'm not minimizing uh, the importance of renaming military bases that honor Confederate soldiers, right? But, but, but what my point is... We, sh- we, we shouldn't have military bases named after Confederate soldiers, but it's also a little disturbing that that was packaged together with giving even more money to the military and yes, it was still treated exactly. as some sort of progressive victory. But think about that for a second, because it was so symbolic of how everything is going down right now in the United States, right? Because, and it was all like summarized in one tweet. I think I retweeted it. It was something along the lines of um, military bases will be renamed and uh, Congress has approved uh, increased military budget. But I mean, think about how, while we might rename bases, we're bombing and murdering black and brown civilians throughout the world right now. Right, like that right, is right. what we do. We murder people, okay? Yeah, you, you, so, yeah, you, you, you imagine, you, like you imagine like somebody in, 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 uh, in Yemen, you know, like, like huddling like in a basement because there's bombing going on, you know, maybe by the Saudis, but with American planes refueled at American bases, you know, like reassuring their family members that don't worry, right? Like these, these bases right. where they're, they're refueling or not, don't have those terrible offensive names anymore. Look at what we just did in Bolivia. I mean, we orchestrated a coup in Bolivia. And um, wow. that has led to utter devastation um, for the native community there. You know, it's just indigenous community. I'm sorry about that. But for, for the indigenous community there. And uh, was there any actual, um, I guess, uh, example of like a democratic process following the ouster of, uh, you know, their leader? No, evil Morales is gone, but now you have this right-wing government that's been incredibly brutal to, uh, you know, the indigenous community. And, and keeps so, on, it keeps on announcing that they can't have elections because of, you know, because of coronavirus. I mean, it's just, we need to take a step back and stop focusing on, demanding like the, I guess like this facade, like we, we're asking for it, you know, we, we need to change the actual system and we need to like restructure all of it. Otherwise we're just um, playing the same game that honestly leads to more suffering, more pain, more poverty, uh, more disenfranchisement, uh, more division among races, more division within like the same political party or within the same movement. I mean, we're so fragmented, so divided because uh, the ruling class, the elite class know how to play us and we fall for it all the time. Perfect. Thank you so much, Anna. Um, Really appreciate the conversation. Uh, Hope you come back soon. Of course, I loved it. Thank you, and congratulations on your show. I absolutely love it. All right, thank you so much. So that was Anna Kasparian uh, from uh, 
the uh, host, uh, producer of uh, The Young Turks, uh, I guess the, the main host on the main show now, uh, and uh, also the co-host along with Nando Vila, who we're going to talk to sometime in September, uh, of, uh, of Weekends uh, Jacobin, which I hope everybody is watching. Uh, we are going to uh, be joined next week uh, by uh, Jean Bajalan, uh, who co-wrote uh, an article a few years ago um, with our mutual friend uh, Michael Brooks about uh, how the GOP is like the uh, the ruling party in Turkey, the AKP. I thought it'd be interesting to revisit that analogy uh, now that um, Trump is doing things like uh, tweeting about how we should delay the election and uh, having uh, peaceful protesters shoved into unmarked cars. Uh, and then uh, Eric Levitz from New York Magazine, then Matt Chrisman from Chapo Trap House, uh, and uh, finally uh, Megan Day from Jacobin. Uh, so really looking forward to that. Uh, before we sign off today, do you want to just take a couple of quick questions from Q&A? Um, and uh, uh, one of them uh, was uh, about book recommendations. Uh, the, the two that the person mentioned were The Code of Capital by Katharina Pastor. Uh, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And Donut Economics uh, by uh, Kate uh, Raworth. Uh, so I have not, uh, but I will check those out. Uh, there's a question about something that came up in the conversation with Dave Smith about power corrupting, uh, about whether this means that we shouldn't want to have more government programs because that gives the state more power. Uh, my perspective on that is a little bit different. I think that, um, that we are going to have power. We are going to have some people making decisions in workplaces, for example, uh, and even in terms of things like public safety in any society. Uh, you know, it might be a centralized state, it might be a Morton Joe in the Mad Max scenario, uh, it might be a state planner uh, in a planned economy, it might be Jeff Bezos in a largely privately owned economy, but I think that because we think power corrupts, we want to spread around power as equally as at all possible, and I think uh, that various moves that bring us to a greater point of economic equality and give workers more power in the workplace, whether that's by turning those workplaces into cooperatives or in some way that's combined with public ownership, uh, is a way to, uh, to do that. Uh, there's a question about uh, the unionization situation at TYT. I've heard different things about that. I know that I don't know, uh, which, uh, you know which, which, is why, uh, which is why I haven't directly addressed that. But look, I want every workplace to be unionized. As a matter of course, always. Um, there was also a question about uh, comments Biden made about uh, wanting a nationwide uh, mask mandate. Uh, obviously, there are places where you shouldn't have to wear a mask. If you're walking your dog in a, uh, in a deserted neighborhood, you don't have to wear a mask. For, you, know, you shouldn't have to wear a mask for that. I don't think anybody suggested that you have to wear one in the privacy of your own home. But certainly in cases like grocery stores, uh, I absolutely think that there should be legal mandates for masks. And this goes right back to the point about power corrupting, because when uh, business owners uh, can uh, economically coerce uh, so-called essential employees to, uh, to come back to work because, um, you know, they can't get unemployment uh, if they refuse to do so, uh, then those workers are going to be exposed to the possibility of getting this terrible respiratory disease that causes all sorts of pain and trauma, 
uh, lifelong lung damage, if not death. Uh, and so I absolutely believe that as a basic corrective to that extreme imbalance of power, that, it, that somebody who's a rich person who owns a business could stay home and be safe with their family while their employees are exposed to people who might have the coronavirus, of course you should have a mandate that people have to wear masks uh, while they go grocery shopping, for example. Um, yes, I actually think the, uh, the DMV uh, is, uh, is, is extremely uh, well run uh, and much more, uh, you know, much more responsive uh, to, uh, to the needs of, of people who use it than, uh, than most uh, private institutions. Uh, and that, uh, that even, uh, even Gary Johnson, who was the libertarian candidate for president last time, uh, said that uh, licensing drivers uh, is the sort of thing that uh, that the state um, that uh, that is a legitimate function of the state. He was booed for that at a libertarian convention, um, which which I have to say I thought was uh, was pretty funny. Um, but uh, but I think that uh, certainly an example. You know, look, it's it's annoying to have to wait on lines at the DMV. If you don't like that, you should have more DMV offices. Uh, so, uh, so the lines, uh, the lines will be shorter, but, uh, life, you know, but public licensing of drivers, uh, is a good thing. Uh, there was a question, uh, for Anna, I thought about asking her, but, uh, but, but, um, I, you know, wasn't going to do that, uh, about, uh, jokes about Dave Rubin. All I would say about that is that Dave Rubin is a living joke. Uh, so, you know, joking about him is almost redundant. Uh, and in particular, going back to the DMV question, uh, I think that, an extraordinarily well-run public institution is the post office, uh, which does things like deliver mail for people who live in isolated rural areas uh, where you would never have an incentive for a private mail delivery service to set up in any kind of cost-efficient way to take them from California to Alaska for 50 cents, uh, as well as providing lots and lots of good union jobs in fact, the Postal Service has been a great driver of, uh, of, of upward mobility, especially for African-Americans, by giving them those good union jobs. Uh, so I, I think that, uh, in fact, to tie it into the Dave Rubin question, if you go back and watch one of my very favorite clips of Joe Rogan, uh, one that Michael talks about at the beginning of his book, Against the Web, uh, Joe Rogan explaining to Dave Rubin, why privatizing the post office would be a terrible idea. This is from a few years ago. It's obviously very timely now, uh, but it's, it's one of the funniest things and one of the best pieces of political argumentation I've seen. I'd strongly recommend it. Uh, but on that note, um, thanks again uh, to um, Michael Powell from the New York Times, David Griscom from the Michael Brooks Show, uh, the comedian and podcaster Dave Smith from the Part of the Problem Show, uh, Lee Phillips from Jacobin and a lot of other places, and the co-author with Mikhail Rosworski of uh, People's Republic of Walmart. Um, and uh, last but certainly not least, uh, the great Anna Kasparian uh, from TYT and Jacobin uh, for coming on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed this. I hope you guys did too. I will see you next week. Uh, with um, Gene Bajalan, uh, Eric Levitz, Matt Chrisman, uh, and, uh, and Megan Day. Uh, but for now, this has been Give Them an Argument. 